Hello and welcome to The Back Page, a video games podcast. My name is Matthew Castle and I am joined, as always, by Matthew Castle. Hello. I'm afraid we do not have a Samuel Roberts today. My podcasting partner in crime is fallen ill for the first time ever. He's broken this incredible streak of appearances, which I know he'll be kicking himself over, but do not worry because have I got a special guest for you to help carry us through this Shinji Mikami-flavoured episode. We are welcoming back the wonderful Richard Stanton. Hello. Hey, Rich, how you doing? Pretty good. I mean, I'm a bit tuckered out after kidnapping Sam earlier, but more or less recovered now. (laughs) Oh, I see. This is all a ploy just to get some alone time with me. I just thought I'd, you know, add a little extra bit onto your back page lore. Oh, God. That already heaving, wheezing mass of lore doesn't need any more bullshit. But um, curious to see how this episode goes. Absolutely certain it's going to be wonderful because, Rich, you are always brilliant on this podcast. But I am quite nervous about people realizing how much heavy lifting Samuel does, how impeccable his planning is, and how chaotic I am without said plan and without uh, as much prep. So, uh, yeah, let's let's see how it goes. <laughs> I mean, if it'd make you feel better, I could kind of do a Sam impression. Hello, and welcome to the back page pod. That was, that was terrible, <laughs> that's actually. That's, that's oh, I mean, it, it was bad, but, you know... <laughs> I've got... That sounded like one of the guys from uh, Last of the Summer Wine. That sounded that had sort of like an elderly Yorkshireman energy. All right. Why, let's... hello there. Welcome to Backpage Pod. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's just forget that ever happened. Let's forget that nonsense and get to the, uh, the matter at hand. We're talking today about Shinji Mikami, and this is the Shinji Mikami Hall of Fame. Uh, I know Sam will be kicking himself that he can't appear on this. This is a very special developer to this podcast. Uh, We love his games. We love what he stands for. He has been involved with or adjacent to so many of our favourite games that repeatedly come up on this podcast. But we have in Rich a similar Shinji Mikami fanatic, so I'm confident that we can have a pretty good stab at this. Yeah, I kind of feel like I should have his poster on my wall or something. I don't, to be clear, but uh, he's definitely one of my favourite designers of all time. Someone who I'd say, if you're interested in games, it's impossible to ignore. Like, even if he's not your favourite, he's had such an outsized influence with his titles. And uh, a fair amount of longevity as well. You know, he's been making games for over over three decades, I would say, in that time. Mm -hmm. A ton of classic titles. Some slightly off-the-wall stuff as well. Um... But I do think there's like certain commonalities when he really hits his stride that his games have. Uh, they're always exciting. They're always brash. Mm. As he kind of becomes more, I guess, accomplished, you'd say, he starts playing around with control systems more. Um, his He's always had an instinct to experiment, and I think he's never lost that. But, you know, we'll come to this when we go through the games themselves and the specifics. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to kick off, though, Rich, as we always do, we like to have a little bit, bit of preamble. God, this is so fucking unnatural, me hosting this. <laughs> I'm going to leave all this in, because I know the listeners will get a kick out of hearing me absolutely biffing my way through this. Sam is such a pro. Like, hosting is, like, an entirely different skill set. You're doing very, very well, Matthew. But, Rich, how's it going? What's been going on with you? I haven't been playing much in the way of new games recently, apart from, conveniently enough, the Resident Evil 4 remake. Uh, I have been playing a lot of Counter-Strike 2, because I got in the beta for that. Uh, Oh, right. Yeah, I'm I'm not very good at Counter-Strike. I've just played an absolute shitload of it. Although, the, the thing I really liked about what Valve did with that beta, I know you're not a counter-strike guy so you might not have seen this but um 
if if you've played a certain amount, you've got a chance of getting selected for the beta. I think it's like three or four percent of the player base at the moment. The right. only the only exception is if you've been banned previously for griefing or cheating. Then Valve's just like, nah. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. It's just you you don't get <laughs> Counter Strike Two. Tough luck. And that's uh, not you. You've never you've never crossed that line. I play hard but fair to win, Math <laughs> Matthew. Uh, no, never never had anything like that. Um, I did worry whether there was a time in my life where my internet was just absolutely awful, but all I wanted to do was play Counter Strike. Um, right. And I dropped out of some games then, and I got a ban. Like it banned me for a week or something because I dropped out of like two or three competitive matches. But that's all I've ever done. Um, oh, that's tough. In fact, I was on the side of the law. I used to do uh, Overwatch in it. Do you know what that is? No. Um, <laughs> so this, uh, not to be confused with Blizzard's game, um, you you opt into it, and what it does is it sends you a clip of somebody who's been reported for cheating, and it'll be like a machine-edited two-minute highlight reel of their match, and right. it'll and you have to watch it. And then at the end, it'll say, you know, did you think you saw any of these types of cheating? And you tick wow, the boxes. Wow, you're and, like, yeah. you're sort of tr- on trial by sort of a jury of your peers. Yeah, you're like the, the counter-counter-terrorist. Oh my God, does that make you a knock? Uh, let's not think about it that way. It makes you, <laughs> you know, you. an upstanding Game member cop. of the community. Oh, I, have, I, I haven't done it in years. <laughs> That's wild. Have I told you about the time I had to do an hour-long presentation about Counter-Strike? Wow. I, I, I would have loved to have seen that. This this was at EGX about four or five years ago, and it was quite chaotically organised. And I can't remember if it was Graham Smith or John T, but one of them was like, we've got a guy who coming in who designed the map Dust in Counter-Strike. We need someone to host a session and interview him about this map. And... I, like this was about two hours before the session so i ended up having to do that interviewing a man about a map in a game i haven't played i read like an account of the making of that map that he'd written on his blog and just tried to reverse engineer some questions so that he would basically tell me that blog post word for word again live i'm sure you were a total pro nobody in the audience even noticed i could see it in the eyes of the audience though that they were like fuck this guy he has no idea what he's talking about well i'd be like oh man the ramp, the legendary ramp. Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah, the Counter Strike Two beat is limited at the moment to just Dust Two, actually. Um, right. Which, to is, be honest, is the ramp back? I mean, it's it's got a ramp in the middle yeah. of the map. Um, I'm not actually sure whether you're talking about Dust or Dust Two at the moment. Um, <laughs> it's probably Dust Two. They're, they're very different things. Uh, both have areas that can be described as ramps, but it's much more pronounced in Dust One, I would say. Well. um... We're not here to talk about dust or dust two. Oh, look at look at you segue out as quickly as you can. <laughs> this is the Counter Strike pod now. I need to get the fuck out of this anecdote. <laughs> is basically what I'm saying. You mentioned Resident Evil Four Remake there. Yeah. Uh, I absolutely I loved your review of this. I was just so thrilled to see you back on the the Resident Evil beat. Always loved your Resident Evil writing. You were like a little cooler on it than most. You still gave it an eighty. Do you want to like talk us talk us through your thoughts? I mean, I definitely was lower than the vast majority. Uh, I I didn't really I haven't really read any other reviews of it, but I know that it got you know nines and tens pretty much across the board and it, you know it's a great game i had a lot of fun with it um probably the the issue i had is that i do think the originals 
you know, obviously it's nonsense to call any game the greatest game of all time, but if I if I was to pick like the five most important games to me, Resident Evil 4 would probably be in there. It's actually the game that made me want to be a games journalist when I was in my early 20s. Uh, when it came out, I got it on GameCube. Well, obviously, I got it on GameCube. It was only on GameCube <laughs> initially. I couldn't believe how good it was. Uh, you know, I'd like. Mm-hmm. I've I've always been really into games. I've always, you know, had consoles. Uh, been interested in the latest releases and stuff. I mean, I've had it with a few other games, but really, nothing has blown me away as much as this did. And mm-hmm. I I was just obsessed with it for pretty much a month after I got it. All I did was like go to work, come home and play Resident Evil 4. I lived quite near to where I worked and I used to come home in my lunch hour to play it for half an hour. Just couldn't get enough of it. Bought it again when it was re-released over the years in various formats. Um, Probably my favourite re-release of it actually was, you know, in hindsight, the Wii one. Um, Because that added so much fun to it. And it, you know, the people who say, oh, it breaks, it makes it way too easy. It's like, it kind of does. But also, you know, by that time I'd probably finished that game like 75 times like i wasn't really yeah. playing it for the challenge anymore um yeah and yeah that i i thought the aim controls in that one were so so well done um i think yeah. the only version i haven't played actually is the vr one um right right but to get back to remake that was probably one of the things i had that is is perhaps a flaw as me a flaw in me as a critic for this game because um you know it is a remake it's a remake of one of the games that i think is just fantastic and one of the most influential our industry's ever seen and i thought they did a great job with the opening half of it and some people will say resident evil 4 itself falls off in the second half which is kind of true i felt the second half really didn't stick the landing and what came to niggle at me more than anything was not that it was missing one or two things towards the end it felt like it was missing a lot you know like when i was going Mm. through the castle and there were there were three things in quick succession that I missed. Right. Um, so there's the bit where the cage drops down on you and mm-hmm. you're locked in there with one of the Garador, is it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, there's a blind claw dude in there. There's various Ganados. In that, this is a cutscene. Like, you see the cage kind of drop on Leon and he starts firing and then it goes into the Ashley sequence, which I thought in this one the Ashley sequences were very good. And then almost, I can't remember if it's before or after in the original game, which really speaks to my memory given how many many times I've played it. (laughs) It has these two rooms in quick succession. You go in the first one, there's a load of the little little skittery last plagas, whatever they're called, the little spider-like ones that go around, and in the remake, they're real bastards. They did a real real good job. Oh, they did an amazing job. Yeah, I couldn't even remember if they were in the original because they were so difficult in this. They were so sort of elevated. I was like, I cannot remember there being anything as horrible as this. Yeah, they they were, but they didn't they didn't act in nearly such right. a threatening manner. They were they were like the crap parasite. Like when right. one of, when one of those appeared, you were like, oh, thank God, I'll just get my knife out. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, you went into the room. There were those on the floor and then a load of spikes on the roof and the roof starts coming down towards right. you and it's got like four jewels and you shoot the jewels and then it stops and you go through and then immediately afterwards it's just like a room where a bulldozer comes through the wall with no explanation it's got a giant spike on the front of course <laughs> and it just chases leon up this tunnel and you have to i think you can snipe the driver like there's various ways to deal right. with it 
it's the great little quick fire like these sequences are like a minute long almost um mm. but it's just like here's an idea for you here's here's something else and it's like it really made that castle feel like a death trap um in a mm. way that this one felt more like a kind of long windy corridor to me with with some enemies um and some of the same beats but it was missing that kind of richness of like right here's this challenge oh you got through that one how about this how about this mm. next it wasn't the one instant i missed it was like i feel like they cut a lot and maybe it was for tonal reasons like i think this game takes itself a lot more seriously than the original did yeah and that's not a bad thing you know like i i think the script in many ways is an improvement but it's also lost a lot of that just sheer schlock factor mm. that um mm. for i would say i would say it reveled in it i think it kind of really enjoyed that kind of b movie action horror tone you know and it removed u3 a boss i really like this giant scorpion monster mm. you fight in cages suspended above a pit and it's like why is that there capcom designers are like why not you know like get through yeah. the cage leon and it, it pulls back from that stuff and i feel that was very much a creative decision where they were like we don't want our game to have that kind of kaleidoscopic craziness if you like we want it to remain a tiny bit more grounded and in keeping with the tone of the other games um because you know this remake project is obviously seriously big thing now and it's gonna continue they're gonna remake the other ones and i think they want them all somewhat tonally consistent yeah and i kind of blame that for it um all yeah. of all of which is a long-winded way of saying i thought the last bit of remake could be a bit of a slog and certainly some of the very last fights on the island i thought were not very imaginative at all in how they were put together. Just a big mass of guys running at you. That's not what I love about Resi 4. I definitely think the way they handle the Salazar statue is really pitiful <laughs> in the remake. That joke's so good it almost bears repeating twice. <laughs> I said, it's a real bust. <laughs> I, d I did laugh when I saw it on my phone. I was really excited about like what that might look like in this age of graphics and oh it's just like a pillar that sort of sprays fire and rotates in a room it yeah is, that's such a step away i'd almost rather they didn't just didn't have it at all so obviously we got review guidelines for the review embargo i was reading through them which i i generally i just look at what they don't want me to mention because some some games companies i don't know why they'll send you these review guides that are like a walkthrough and it's like well actually i'd quite like to enjoy this game for myself so usually i just look at the spoilers like what should i not write about and in there it was like don't mention salazar's statue which i actually did in my review what a fuck you to that review guide <laughs> that, that, that kind of got me excited because i was like well i know not everything's in it but the amazing bit and we should say for listeners who haven't played the original resident evil 4 you're basically at the end of the giant castle sequence you're in this huge like cathedral like hall and there's a big path with water either side of it and as you start walking on this path a gigantic mechanoid statue of salazar <laughs> the little napoleon dude uh antagonist just starts chasing you and you're i think it's a qte isn't it you're hammering the button and you know just this giant thing's clomping after you and yeah it's just a nut another of those things that takes a minute but like really mm -hmm. sticks in your mind afterwards you're like wow 
that one in particular really kind of stung, I thought. I also really disliked that after fighting the lake monster, I think it's called Dos Logos or something, at the end of the original game, as as you've killed it and as it's sinking, your leg gets trapped by a rope. Oh, yeah. So as this giant thing sinking, like it's going to pull you down and you have to just hack at the rope with your knife. And that's all it is, just hacking at the rope with your knife. But again, yeah. it's like, you think this fight's finished, all of a sudden 30 seconds of excitement and then finally it's like now you can breathe and yeah i think those things like in terms of pacing like each one individually probably isn't very much but when you get to the end of the experience i certainly felt there was like like i felt the original game didn't leave anything on the table everything that team could think of went in that game like everyone who shipped that game must have been like yes that is the best product I'm ever going to work on. Um, <laughs> and I just kind of don't get the same sense from this, not to disrespect Capcom's current designers or anything. I just think it's like, it's a different era and the original game probably went out to shake up the industry in a way that was never an option for this one. This one was almost kind of trammeled by its own status. Like, I don't want to be down on it though. Like, I, I, I had a good experience, a great experience with it. It's just, yeah, when you have that kind of reverence for the source material i guess maybe you're always kind of on a hiding to nothing and so is the game it's a good jumping in point for for what we're talking about this episode obviously resident evil 4 directed by the mighty shinji mikami and it feels like a series that kind of hangs over him a bit this is certainly someone who has to like deal with reputation and the games that came before him and has an interesting relationship with those but we can get to that when we talk about his games resident evil 4 to me is the kind of jewel in the collection but you look across his games and he's tried his hands at so many different things he almost seems sort of restless in his desire to move on to other genres and did you ever watch the um archipel documentary with him oh i did see yeah i I did watch it, but uh, I can't actually remember much about it. One of the most fascinating segments in it is when he is working with Platinum. Like, he's technically part of the company. Yeah, so he set it up with them. I actually interviewed Anaba about this, and he said, yeah, it was always the deal. Like, basically, when they were talking about leaving Capcom and setting up Platinum, you know, there was all this kind of talent from Clover Team, um, Clover Team itself coming from Production Studio 4, which itself comes from Mikami's Resident Evil team. Mm. So there were a lot of staff that had worked with Mikami, a lot of people whose careers he had an interest in. Right. And basically he agreed to co-found Platinum with them. And the deal was he would, you know, make one game with them, give them, I don't know what it was, three or four years of his career. And then he was going off to do his own thing. And um, right. that's exactly what he did. What was interesting about this this Archipel documentary, he talks about his time at Platinum and pitching games and, uh, you know, the regrets at certain th- ideas he loved and uh, that didn't come to fruition. He talks about an open world game in a Blade Runner type world. Oh. He talks about a a sort of cell-shaded adventure in, with a sort of Ghibli-esque vibe about a, a girl who is in a town where at night all the citizens turn into animals and has to solve a mystery about this transformation. And he talks about a Wii U game about a patient in a hospital who is trying to track down a serial killer who could be anyone else in the hospital. So she doesn't know if it's a, another patient, a doctor, a janitor or whatever, and is trying to use light sort of telekinetic powers to sort of um, worm out this mysterious person and 
you know, the powers that be at the time, Sega, who they were pitching these ideas to, just weren't interested in any of them. And he ends up making Vanquish, which we'll talk about in a bit. But, you know, I see this guy's track record and I see all the successful games he made. And I was really struck by all the great Mikami games we haven't had. And actually, you know, he is clearly full of ideas. You know, not many creators talk about stuff that, like, didn't make it or didn't even get off the page. But, you know, he clearly is a game maker at his core, which maybe is a you know a bit of a trite observation given his career, but not everyone in this industry gives you that impression. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think um, they're nothing alike in any other respect, but I think he and Hideo Kojima share a common frustration, which is that you know they want to make big budget games, they want to make the biggest, shiniest, most impressive thing around. Um, to do that you have to make the deal with the devil you know you're you are not going to get a hundred million and a development team for four or five years to make your vision unless one of these big publishers think they can sell that vision at the end of it and Mm -hmm. unfortunately that means you know these brilliant creative minds end up in a situation where it's like um yeah you know mikami's probably pitching that stuff and some suit from Sega is on the other end. I'm probably being unfair to Sega here. Just like, <laughs> yeah, what about something like Resident Evil? You know, right. it's it's like that must be so frustrating to have to deal with, and it the, you don't even have the outlet of going into the kind of equivalent of indie filmmaking. I mean, you could mm. do it. Uh, you know, there are kind of developers who leave the big budget scene. Um, and are happier to work on the smaller projects but you know Mikami's never seemed to be like that I mean who knows what he's going to do next but yeah he's he's all I think that's what comes out kind of in what we're talking about when we're talking about the kind of the the almost fizzing creativity of a Resident Evil 4 like it's such an incredibly creative game for Mm. what it is and it's like um I always remember somebody describing an Elvis Costello song, just a simple pop song, as so much better than it needed to be. Right. You know, like this song could have charted, you know, and it would have still been kind of completely fine. It's the song is Pump It Up, by the way. But it's it's just fantastic. And that description <laughs> of it being so much better than it needed to be kind of suits all his games. Like you can mm. you can always tell he's kind of been thinking about them and thinking about them and thinking about them and you know again another comparison to Kojima kind of like what might a player do here what's a player going to do if I give them this tool what will they do with it in this context and so on so I, I do think it kind of like that aspect of his character gets expressed in the games he's allowed to make but I can I can only imagine you know the frustration of being a guy like that and yeah unfortunately like only certain stuff is gonna get greenlit and it's like i'm not even picking on sega particularly like look at capcom you know they had him making he made resident evil it was such a huge success far more than they ever anticipated and what do they do they kind of stick him on resident evil and resident evil alikes for you know the next six seven years he said that period after resident evil was like one of the least fulfilling of his career because he was kind of moved off being creative you know which sounds madness doesn't it 
like you've just had a guy deliver the biggest hit in your company's history. Well, we don't want any more games from him. He can manage the division now. I find it hard to be too upset about that because it does lead to the arrival of other great talent. Another strand to Mikami's, you know, you have the games he shepherds, but you also have the careers he shepherds. And he is a crucial figure in, um, you know, definitely the career of Hideki Kamiya. Yeah, for sure. Again goes on to be a really important person to both of us in the games he makes. Um, for me personally, Shutakumi, creator of Ace Attorney, is another disciple of Mikami, comes up under him. It's the theme of his career, and now it's John Johannes, isn't it, who did yes. The Evil Within 2 and just has just done Hi-Fi Rush. This is maybe the, the moment to mention Takuru Fujiwara. Basically, all you need to know is that he was the kind of the Capcom goat before... Uh, you know the 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 crew that we probably think of as the Capcom Golden Age came along. Right. Probably his best known game is Ghouls and Ghosts, but like designed a lot of the classic hardcore '80s arcade games from Capcom. His games are often like quite brutally hard, and this is a strain he keeps throughout his career with whatever he makes. Uh, he's actually still around, but this guy is. I, I don't I can't remember which word Mikami used, but Mikami basically refers to this guy as his mentor. Um, right. When he joined Capcom, and I think it was quite a like, it was quite a brutal process initially at Capcom. He's talked about this where it would be like you were left on your own to design something. You know, someone more senior than you would take a look at it, and they'd they'd probably just say that's bad, and that was all the feedback you got. It was just right. like go off and design something else now. And I think that strain where Fujiwara was obviously quite a tough taskmaster, but obviously took quite an interest in the young Mikami, probably obviously recognised some sort of talent there. And it's been Mm. an absolute strain in Mikami's career ever since. Um, You know, like when he talked about uh, with Tango, I'm going to direct The Evil Within, which he did. Then it's time for the younger talent to direct. I'm just going to be a Mm. producer. Yeah, it's kind of the Capcom way, and he seems to have internalised it. I mean, it's a massive tragedy he ever left Capcom, if you ask me, but it was he was probably never going to stay there. Like, I do think mm. all that Clover stuff was probably bad management, because look at the talent Capcom lost. It, it was probably inevitable he'd leave at some stage, but he's just going around founding kind of mini Capcoms now, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe maybe this is a good point to just very quickly touch on the general trajectory of his career. Feels like with Mikami's career that there are sort of firm eras to it that we can kind of pinpoint. Joining Capcom, you have the creation of Resident Evil, you have the Capcom 5 era, then Clover, and then Tango Gameworks. Vanquish and the Platinum Years... You know, as you've said, they're, they're kind of a funny one. They sort of sit in the middle. It's not really what he intends to do, and it's harder to kind of see that as as a sort of central era. Do we think that's a sort of useful way of looking at his career? Like, do we still see the sort of sensibilities changing between those eras, or is it more a case of, you know, can you see, like, the natural evolution of, of a director here? Because I personally, I see someone who kind of ping-pongs between director and producer he talks quite openly about stepping into production more at capcom and how that changes like his mindset maybe as a creator and begins to impact his later directorial work he is sort of forever changed by that you know he is no longer just a pure ideas man he has like a foot in logistics and that kind of changes his approach but at the same time it puts him in a place to like elevate other people and support other directors. So it's it's quite 
very interesting to see someone who has served as director and producer sometimes at the same time on a single project. I guess the only the only kind of era we slightly missed out is the five or six years he's at Capcom before Resident Evil. I'm not, I'm not going to try and reclaim these games or anything, um, but he, wor- <laughs> he worked on uh, three licensed titles. Capcom at that time did a lot of Disney licensed games. They were all very much of a muchness. Um, apart from Goof Troop, actually, Goof Troop is uh, an interesting exception. You know, nice looking 2D platformers. You know exactly the kind of thing. You've played one of them before, I'm sure. Disney's Aladdin is interesting mainly because the Super Nintendo and the Mega Drive versions were completely different games. Mm. Um, usually it was the same game, and there might be a couple of differences uh, across the platforms, but yeah, these were just two completely different games. I'm actually ashamed to say I preferred the Mega Drive one when I was a kid. You know, obviously, realising looking back now... Um, you're saying it. that Dave Perry at Shiny is a better designer <laughs> than Shinji Mikami. I don't mean it, Mr. Mikami. Um, <laughs> this is bold. This is a hot take. <laughs> but yeah, the, these games are very much like Capcom makes a lot of them, so it's obviously where they're kind of blooding their young directors, so to speak. It's like mm. they have a formula for these games, so like, how wrong can it go in a way? I mean, I'm sure it could go disastrously wrong, but... They they keep Mikami kind of yeah working on these licensed titles for quite a while. Goof Troop I mentioned I quite enjoy Goof Troop actually. It's not bad. It's um like a top down puzzler, you know, with like a Bomberman style layout when you can mm. pick up pots and chuck them around. But the interesting element of it, I mean, it's not that interesting. Is it's uh, co op? You know, you can play as Goofy or God, what's his what's his nephew called? Max. Max. That's that's some good Disney knowledge there, Max. Is it his nephew or is his son? That was my Goofy impression. I don't know. I think in the Goof Troop lore, I think Goofy might be a single dad. I don't know what happened to Mrs. Goofy. Wow, that's that's some dark shit, Matt. She just got <laughs> sick of Goofy because he's the ultimate bad hang. Yes, sir, but this is a Starbucks and all those children are crying <laughs> yeah. now. Um... So yeah, I mean, there's not really too much to say about these. They're not mm. un- they're not undiscovered classics or anything. Like they are quality titles, as you would expect from like a Capcom licensed tie-in in the '90s. Because yeah, Capcom was good at this stuff. That's why it did so many of them. You can only define it as the Apprentice era, and then yeah. uh, it's actually uh, Takuro Fujiwara, who we mentioned earlier. One of the games he designs is Sweet Home uh, in the '80s. Sweet Home is a top-down RPG set in a haunted house where you go in, there's like a team of playable characters and depending on how it plays out, they go around and explore the mansion and they can die. Uh, it's it's a game with branching paths and consequences, basically. And Fujiwara uh, comes up with the concept of doing this in 3D on the PlayStation and mm. Mikami's the man to do it, he reckons. And he reckoned right. Um, so Mikami's kind of assigned to design this game from scratch. And I think he said he spent six months or something just working on his own, designing it, and then pitched what he designed and Capcom gave him the team to build it. And uh, yeah, it's it's 
into the stratosphere from there. It's an interesting guy to, uh, you know, again, to go back to the Archipel documentary, which I think is a really valuable piece of testimony from him because he's not always the most open in, like, traditional interviews. So to hear him kind of talk quite openly about his, like, creative process and and, and everything. And, and actually, uh, I think the thing that struck me about Resident Evil is he's quite open to the kind of happy accidents that make that game great. He has, you know, certainly good ideas about what the excitement of that game is is gonna kind of stem from um the tension of like decision making of like whether you go into a dangerous place he describes it which he says he is something he gets from watching dawn of the dead he said it's just a lot of people making good or bad decisions and that is actually the crux of like what is interesting about the horror film it's you know the human decision at the heart of it and you know that's that's like the big design idea but you know he says quite openly that you know the the kind of tank controls and the fixed cameras you know come more about as a result of deciding to go with this pre-rendered background because he wanted it to look a certain way have a certain visual quality to it he originally imagines it as a first person game so he's thinking like big visual fidelity and he sees those things as a kind of payoff for kind of maintaining those and he you know jokes in the in the interview that when people come up to him now and, and sort of celebrate those genre conventions and tell him what genius he is, he's like, well, ideally I didn't want to do these things. I'm kind of embarrassed that this is the way it kind of handles and looks, which is quite refreshing considering, like, I think on this podcast we've probably, you know, said all kinds of wanky things about how clever he is. I mean, I, I do think, um, just to go back to what you were saying earlier about the press profiles, um, I'm not sure Mikami has much time for the press. Um mm. Which, you know, com- completely fair enough. Like, some creators are just like that, you know. Um, and mm. I th- I think he is one of those that, yeah, doesn't open up too much. And um, has, he's definitely been burned once or twice in his career by review scores he should never have got, which, you know, probably doesn't help. Um, with, yeah, with Resident Evil, it's like, it's really interesting, that kind of trade-off, because you lose a lot when it moves away from the fixed perspectives. And, mm. you know, some people will just say, oh, you know, it's so much better having a 3D free camera. Why shouldn't I? Why shouldn't I be able to look where I want? And, you know, fair enough. Like, it's a strong argument. And obviously the industry has moved away from that fixed fixed perspective. But it gives Mikami in that game in particular such control over what you can't see he'll give you an angle where you go through a door and the camera is looking at your avatar as if there's someone standing in front of them and you're the camera Mm. so you just get this big view of your avatar's face and one of the most brilliant kind of areas of resident evil is the sound design you know you can very often hear the monsters before you can see them so it's this combination of like fixed perspective do i want to move forward and get a better view very often when i was playing this and you know you have to take pity on young rich here i would only have been like 13 or 14 this game scared the shit out of me like i was (laughs) i was scared of stuff that happened in this game i remember when i saw the very first zombie cutscene where you walk through and you hear the kind of (laughs) and you walk up it's pre-rendered thing where you the zombie is you don't know it's a zombie it looks like someone's eating someone you look down and it gradually turns and you see the side of the face mm. um and then it goes back into the game chris takes a couple of steps back or jill does and you've just got a zombie walking towards you when that first happened to me i was so scared i turned around and i ran out of the room and i was just like what else can i do in this game and i just 
I just walked around <laughs> like that big banquet room. I walked around the mansion main hall, and I was just like, "Oh, there's nothing else I can do." Like, I've <laughs> just got to go back and see that zombie. Yeah, that's the decision he wanted you to make. Yeah, yeah, indeed. There were other moments in that game like it. I remember when it introduces the hunters. One of the terrifying things about them is they move so quickly and they can one-shot you if you're relatively low from quite a distance, like they'll do this jumping attack. And I remember coming back to the mansion the first time I ever saw a hunter. I'll never have an experience like this in a game again. Uh, You come back in through the garden, uh, you're walking through from the mansion back door into a kind of hallway, and the camera angle shows you your character at the end of the hall. You're walking towards the camera and there's like a corridor next to them they can't see which is where you've just Mm. come from where the door is so at this point the game introduces the hunter with this first person cutscene of something moving really fast over the path you've just taken and jumping and you see it like the scaly hand reach out for the doorknob you've just come through so you're wondering what the fuck this thing is and i remember i just got my shotgun up i was playing as chris but i had like orange health and all i heard was this thing going And then this fucking, like, frog gorilla thing with giant claws jumped out of the darkness and took my head off in one swipe. And Chris's body just slumps to the ground. I mean, incredible. I remember my dad coming into my room when I was playing Resident Evil and laughing at it because the characters were wounded. He was like, ah, look at him. But I found that terrifying when you see your character actually wounded. And when you die... And it's got that horrible thing of like, you know, you'll see the zombie begin to get down and eat your character before the kind of, you know, before it completely fades out. Like that that horrible suggestion of what might happen afterwards. Um, mm. Yeah, that's the stuff that really kind of thinking about it kind of sends a frisson up my spine even now. A lot of these ideas do come down to like, you know, at the core of it, this is this particular emotion is the thing I'm kind of trying to tap into, and that's definitely like at the heart of you know a lot of his games. I think if there is a through line of always finding them kind of gripping in that way. We'll obviously talk about his games in more detail in a moment when we assemble our Hall of Fame. But um, just moving forward to where we're currently at, obviously Shinji Mikami he's just left Tango GameWorks, which is the studio he set up um, about six seven years ago. No one knows why. Uh, I'm not going to ask you, hey, Rich, why do you think, like, no one knows what's going on here. There's no, like, official statement. But I am interested in, you know, from following his career and following what he says and how he talks about his games, if you have any kind of, like, read on where you think he's at. You're not going to believe this, Matt. He founded uh, Tango in 2010. So it's 13 years ago. Really? Yeah. Oh, Um, my God. But, like, I think that says a lot, doesn't it? We still think of Tango as a relatively young studio, or I do, anyway. Yeah. Um, But he's, you know, he's been there for 13 years. Um, It may have just been time to move on. He, uh, he always talked about that studio as being one where he would mentor and bring through young developers. Um, I noticed at the end of it as well, there was a very nice statement from Bethesda. Like, it was no konami kojima situation right um you know they thanked him for being a creative leader and supportive mentor to young developers wished him well in the future and all that jazz Mm. um and i think that's mikami's style other than at capcom where you know who knows what was going on there but like 
some of their great talent left under a cloud. He left Platinum on very good terms. He still seems to be very good friends with all those people. Mm. Seems to have left Tango on a high as well. And who knows? Like I personally, I just hope that whatever the future holds, it holds at least one more Mikami game because yeah, it feels like he's too young to retire. You know, like he's he sold Tango to Zenimax. Ah, can't remember when. But like I'm sure he's not short of a bob or two. <laughs> Maybe he does just want to retire, and if he does, good luck to him. Thanks for all the great games. But mm. you know, if he wants to let the creativity run free, I mean, any publisher with a brain in the world would give him a blank check to do it. And I just hope that whatever it is, we get one, at least more Mikami game. I mean, a handful would be incredible. Kickstarter Mikami. It's right there. <laughs> yeah, and my wallet. <laughs> I guess we've touched on it a few times. I've I've struggled to find too much like truly great reading material on him. But I know that you have met Mikami. I'm interested. Like, how how did your encounter go? Did you find him frosty? Because I've heard from other friends who have met him that it wasn't like their favourite time. Uh, I wouldn't say he was frosty. Um... I met him at the announcement for Vanquish, which was Mm. in Tokyo. Sega had rented out the top floor of this amazing hotel. You know, it wasn't rooms, it was like a big function area with a bar and, you know, a big presentation stage and blah, 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 blah. Everyone from Platinum was there. A ton of Sega's top creatives were there as well, including uh, I met um, Nagoshi that day. A side note, how did that encounter go? Because, again... He was really nice to me. um, Oh, great. Because I was with uh, Christoph Kagatani, who used to be Edge's man in Tokyo. Um, Right. I I was on Edge at the time. Um, Yeah, Christoph knew Nagoshi, and uh, I I, I think uh, knew the way to Nagoshi's heart, which was basically whiskey. Um, and yeah, Nagoshi was really, really nice to me. I think he may have been pissed up. Um, right. <laughs> like, it, it, it was just that kind of vibe, you know, he was kind of sitting holding court to everyone. But um, yeah, the the event was Vanquish. They showed a trailer. Before the trailer, Mikami said a few words. So Mikami got up on the stage. I knew exactly who he was. You know, I was so excited about just being in the same room as this guy. I don't know if everyone there did, you know, realise they were kind of in the presence of gaming royalty. Anyway, he got up, and the first thing he did, and I feel kind of sorry for the poor journalist who was sent from IGN, he pointed out the IGN person who was in the crowd, and he thanked them for their god hand review. Um, So, (laughs) listeners may know, god hand got like, I can't remember the score, but it was like two or three, yeah, three out of ten from IGN, the review said the camera doesn't work, which is like such a disgrace, because the camera is probably the best fighting game camera system ever. Um, <laughs> really went for the game, really did a number on it, and obviously the you know, the tragic coda to the God Hand story is that no matter how good it was, it was a big, big flop commercially. So yeah, he, he started off by thanking the IGN journalist for the God Hand review, which as you can imagine, kind of like in a room full of journalists, you're just like, oh, oh. Um, <laughs> you know, like, is he going after GameSpot next? I hear yeah. there's someone from Edge here. <laughs> so. Oh, that'd be so good. He just unrolls a little bit of paper and it's like, here's my list of grievances. 
Have we got anyone from Games Master circa 1998? <laughs> yeah, so um, anyway, he introduces the game. They show the trailer. It's amazing. There were a couple of group interviews afterwards because um, mm. Sega had flown a ton of press and everyone was trying to get a one-on-one with him. I didn't even get a one-on-one with him. I got like an unofficial 10 minutes. So we were doing group interviews. Some of those were a bit frosty. Like um, I remember there was this... Um, pretty formidable Russian woman who was there and she went straight in on him. Why why are the enemies in your games always Russian? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I can't even remember what Mikami answered but whatever it was she wasn't having it and she just basically yeah. asked him it again in a louder voice and I was like oh my god she's disrespecting Shinji Mikami and I got to speak to him, not about Vanquish, but because Edge was doing Top 100 Video Games as a separate issue. It was right. something It was something like that. Anyway, our goal was, for all the games in the top 10, we've got to get, you know, one of the top creators on it and just have, you know, a sidebar telling the readers, God, we used to go into a lot of effort on magazines, didn't we? Yeah. Uh, it's not like the internet. Slap up anything. Um <laughs> So I got Mikami and uh, got to chat to him for 10 minutes about Resident Evil 4. He wasn't frosty. I would say it was clear he didn't necessarily want to be there, but I'd also really forced it. Like, I'd really forced the issue. They'd turned me down multiple times, but I was just Mm. like, if I don't get Mikami now, I never will. He had a baseball cap on indoors, and it was a darkened (laughs) room. Yeah, Uh, but, you know, he he answered all my questions. Um, He was perfectly polite. Most interesting thing about Resi 4 was, um, you know, I said the really interesting element of that game is how completely you changed the combat system, you know, from Mm. what was quite a slow-paced one uh, with the older games. And he said, yeah, um, this is obviously through a translator. He he doesn't have a Glaswegian accent. He said, yeah, actually, I was just walking about and there were, like, a huge number of people out, like, even more than usual. And while I was in the middle of this crowd, I just had the thought, what if all these people suddenly turn on me? He said that that was it, basically. That was the idea for the combat system in Resi 4. Wow. So, yeah. He's an ideas guy. Yeah. Then he gave me a green and red herb wrapped up in a piece of paper and sent me on my way. Um, But yeah, I mean, he was perfectly pleasant. It wasn't frosty. It was, you Mm. know, a guy who's just done a big stage event, which he probably didn't enjoy. And then, you know, like, ultimately you have to say to him, he did agree to meet me. It's tough when you get to meet someone who's designed something that's so important to you. When when it's something that's really important, like one of the biggies, and I think every every journey probably has like one or two things where they're like, if I could get this, this would be, you know, I'd be, that would be a big tick off the bucket list. Yeah, for sure. That insane pressure it puts on that encounter to like deliver. Yeah. Um, I can imagine the stress of like how much you've played that game, how well you know that game, and like you've got 10 minutes to like talk about something probably closer to seven with translation (laughs) yeah exactly it's kind of like which three of these 20 questions i have do i ask yeah Um, i mean it's close to like if you could ask like god a question you know (laughs) it's it's sort of you know on a level in terms of something that you could feasibly do it's like well what's the one thing i could ask it's why i kind of like almost never want to meet miyamoto because I just know I'd blow it. I'll tell you a good one. I did um, I did an Edge cover story on Miyamoto. I uh, went to meet him in London 
in a hotel. It was Mr. Managawa. Do you do you remember him? Did you ever meet him? Yes. Is he the? Is he's he's sort of the Nintendo of Japan PR and translator to Miyamoto? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Really old school, like properly Hiroshi Yamauchi era Nintendo. Um, <laughs> like the guys just immaculately presented the entire time perfect english and yeah just a really nice guy as well i always remember him like ordering for a table of games journalists on another occasion in tokyo and feeling quite sorry for this man that was so clearly so far above us all but was dutifully doing his job to basically children abroad yeah so i went into the miyamoto interview i'd been stressing so much about it because like even at that age i understood you're probably not going to meet this guy again you know, yeah. like, this is your shot to, you know, get something interesting. And I went in, I had all my questions, I had my notebook, had about 15 pens, started the interview, and five minutes in, my dictaphone died. <laughs> I was just like, what? And obviously, those were the days where you had dedicated dictaphones. Yeah. And immediately, I'm just like, oh, shit. Like, how could the one thing I didn't think about you know, my battery's running out happen. Right. And Mr. Managawa, my my hero, swings into action and he's just like instantly summoning two Nintendo flunkies into the hotel room. Quick fire Japanese, <laughs> he's pointing at my dictaphone. <laughs> One of the flunkies grabs it and opens the back and looks at the batteries and they're dispatched out the door. And then <laughs> him and Miyamoto make small talk with me for five minutes. And then right. the flunkies kind of rush back in through the door with the right kind of batteries and wow, um, yeah. And he even extended my interview time at the end. Um, oh, what a gent! How's uh, what small talk with Miyamoto like? He asked me what Nintendo games I've been playing recently, what I liked about them. I asked him kind of the same, and that that was the one bit that was slightly disappointing because he gave me the classic Miyamoto answer. He was like, "Oh, I don't really play, you know, what else is out there," mm. <laughs> which is utter nonsense like it's very oh, obvious from Miyamoto's games that he has a wide and deep knowledge of the competition but um he's just always pretended he hasn't for whatever reason <laughs> That's, it's quite a we good all know stick. he's got a platinum trophy in Assassin's Creed Black Flag <laughs> So that's his shtick. So, um, but yeah. yeah, when I got my chance, yeah, the the nightmare almost happened, and uh, God bless Mr. Managawa. Hallowed Whoa. be his name. Miyamoto and Makami. I think the the one I'll probably never get now is Kojima. I'd love to do mm. Kojima. Just just never quite came up. Like um, we had mm. a superb guy on edge for Metal Gear when um, Metal Gear Four was happening, and I was relatively junior at the time. So obviously, like, Duncan did all our Metal Gear 4 stuff at the time and did an incredible job on it. I don't know. I think but it yeah, happen. I, yeah, I, it depends. I tried to get him when Death Stranding came out on PC. Yeah. I tried to get him, but nothing doing. But yeah, we'll see. The, the problem is these days, he doesn't have to do him. Like, I remember, I think Dan's told this story in your podcast, but I remember him telling me about the E3 he went to for Snake Eater, was it? And he just thought he was getting a demo by a Konami rep but he went in and it's just Kojima there with a the game <laughs> it's like yeah those were the days well you know what I think it's time for us to assemble you know what that sounded so fake that was the worst fucking segue we've ever been in this podcast uh, listen I'm going to tell it to you straight I think it's time that we put together a Shinji Megami Hall of Fame we're going to play 20 seconds of music uh, to signify a break and then we'll be back in a second so uh, here you go mm. 
Hello and welcome back to this Samuel Roberts free episode of the back page with me, your host, Matthew Castle. And you can tell that I've never hosted this before because Sam would never do such a convoluted intro to part two. This is the part of the podcast where we are going to assemble our Hall of Fame. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you might be familiar with the format. We did this with LucasArts Games and Platinum Games. We're basically going to be running through all the things Shinji Mikami directed to try and pick out five that we feel truly represent him. I mean, I, I don't know, Rich, if there's a particular like characteristic you feel we should be looking for in these games. Yeah, so yeah, I do think there are certain qualities um, that I would look for in any Hall of Fame of Mikami's games. Among my favourite things his stuff does is keep on surprising you. Um, I would mm-hmm. like every game on here to reflect that element of invention in some ways. Um, not all of his games, but a lot of them are built around like one brilliant idea. And then just mm-hmm. wringing what it can out of this idea, and then I guess the other two thing is that the the main themes of his career are horror and action, and that doesn't mm. that doesn't really mean that every game on here is going to have horror and action in it, but I think a lot of them will. We're going to look at the games he's directed as the kind of main body of this, but we are also going to do a section at the end where we're going to talk about things that he plays a key part in, whether he's a kind of producer or like you know a key creative in some way we didn't want to just talk about every single one of these games it'd probably be about 50 games all told so instead we're each going to highlight a couple and probably hash out um a sixth pick for the hall of fame from those um so don't worry if it feels like we're glossing over some some important stuff we're going to do this chronologically let's kick off uh, with uh, 1991's Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is actually a perfect opportunity for me to say that uh, during this exercise, we don't have to weigh in on all these things if we don't have any huge opinions. I haven't played Who Framed Roger Rabbit. It definitely isn't talked about um, with any kind of reverence that you do hear around his other license fare. Uh, oh, it's got to be on the list, Matt. What, for the Hall of Fame? I, You know... I just left the pause for dramatic effect. Of the games he's directed, uh, this is the only one I've never touched. I actually briefly looked at a YouTube video on it because I felt ashamed about my lack of knowledge. And uh, yeah, I, I'm sure it was perfectly acceptable fare for the time. Um, I don't think it's really in the Hall of Fame discussion with all due respect to Roger Rabbit. Let's skip and go to Disney's Aladdin. So as we mentioned earlier, this was the SNES version, not the shiny Mega Drive version. I literally shiny Mega Drive version. Was it made by Shiny? I think it was made by Shiny. I'll just check that out. 2D platformer based uh, on the, the Disney film. Obviously a gorgeous world and a gorgeous animation style in that film uh, for them to base their game on. I am more familiar with the Mega Drive game, which I do think is the better looking of the two. What I think this does demonstrate is a certain sort of like quality bar that he's trying to hit in his games there's an awful lot of license fare which doesn't really register and doesn't make an impact and while this isn't a great masterpiece i think you know it clearly shows to capcom at least here is someone who you know has a bit of something here is someone who can be trusted with these things you know i think capcom based on interviews with other developers there have a bit of a habit of throwing planners which is kind of the role they give to i think it's sort of their title for sort of game designer basically um into these directorial roles to kind of test them a key historic moment if not truly representative of 
what what he can do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, these games were pretty good, um, and the Aladdin ones are remembered as being among the best, uh, with mm. good reason. Um, I think by this stage, uh, visuals were reaching a stage where, like, obviously you're not getting close to the look of the Disney movie, but mm. it looks like Aladdin from the Disney movie. Um, right. The Mega Drive one, by the way, was developed by the... <laughs> long defunct uh virgin group you remember when virgin made games right um i swear dave perry of shiny entertainment wasn't i think he worked for virgin games uh so that's probably where our shiny confusion is coming (laughs) from but this episode isn't about david perry hall of fame is it i don't mean to keep making this about samuel but one of his other podcast superpowers is the uh, surreptitious wikipedia check which he then casually drops in which i can't do because i've got an incredibly noisy mechanical keyboard so it'd be super obvious if i'm trying to do anything on the slide i don't think it's uh going to be threatening the hall of fame really just because mikami goes on to such a storied career but it's worth yeah. saying that these disney licensed games were of i would say a high to a very high quality at this time mm. and this is one of the best of them i had the mega drive one when i was young i did play this one later as I recall, the apple throwing is more involved than the Mega Drive version. I don't know if that's just some sort of fever dream. <laughs> um, I don't know. Is that sort of uh, but, just sort of a Mikami bias coming through? Like, yeah, there has yeah. to be. There has to be something next level in this. Oh yeah, oh, for sure. The apple physics. When I was playing Goof Troop, I was like, you know, looking at it through that lens of like, hmm, look at that pot placement. Very interesting. Is this an early sign of the master that would create the labyrinth of the Spencer mansion? <laughs> and of course, it's just, you know, complete uh, post-facto. Um, yes. Yeah, I'm not sure justification is the right term, but yeah, you're you're looking at it, th- you know, knowing what that person would go on to create. Yeah. Whereas the truth in both Aladdin and Goof Troop's case, I think, is that they're good examples of a pretty common form of the time which is the licensed game like these days licensed games are they're a very different thing they operate on a different scale whereas mm. in those days they were really quite common and um there there was a kind of formula to them but that said these were very good examples of them we come to our first obvious contender this is uh, resident evil in 1996 in which we enter the spencer mansion fight zombies, many scary things, discover... I I sometimes feel a little false talking about this game because I come to it much later in the remake and so it's kind of a bit of a false memory, this sort of revolutionary moment in survival horror that this is. But um, I know that, you've already said in this podcast, you did play it and were a bit more sort of familiar with it at the time. Uh, You can't overstate how much better this looked than everything else on the PlayStation at the time. Um, The only game that had happened previously that was even comparable to it was Alone in the Dark. And Alone in the Dark was like many years before this. I think it was mm. at least at least four or five. You know, and it looked um it looked it the details on the textures in particular, that choice to go for the pre rendered backdrops for visual fidelity. Most other three D games on the PlayStation at this time, like the visuals weren't really much more than geometric shapes. You know, it was kind of like the the idea of textures hadn't really caught on in the early stages of 3D. Uh, So you were looking at something that had a visual fidelity that nothing else uh, you could get on PlayStation had or would have until I would say Metal Gear Solid, which is like a year later. Um, Mm. It it also had, and like, this is going to seem laughable. 
you know everyone mocks like the script of Resident Evil and the production mm. values and stuff now. Like it it kind of was one of the first examples outside of, you know, PC CD-ROM games like Wing Commander perhaps where it was trying to tell a story in a cinematic way, albeit ham-fistedly. Like it came across as, you know, a B movie, which is what it was. But, like, I don't know if it was necessarily much worse than the kind of stuff you'd get, you know, on Channel 4 <laughs> midnight on a Saturday. It was like... Right. Um, <laughs> looking back now, yeah, it's hilarious. But, like, at the time, I wasn't thinking that. You know, I wasn't going around chuckling with my friends about Jewel Sandwich. Um, mm. You were completely taken in by this world. You know, it's obviously fully voice acted. Like, it had a cast, you know, like mm. lots of video games at that time didn't even bother introducing the character beyond, you know, maybe a line of biography in the manual. It seemed such a step ahead of all the other stuff on the PlayStation at the time. Um, mm. It looked so amazing. It didn't play like anything else. Um, and it had that interesting thing where it's like, it is an action game in some respects, but it, it is actually more of a horror experience for Resident Evil. You know, that idea that, like, I think one of the most brilliant things he does is the zombies take a different amount of bullets. So, like, the standard zombie, I think the minimum they'll go down in is three bullets, but they can take up to six. And, you know, ammo is always at a premium. Obviously, resource management is so, so key to this game. Um, and just elements like that that had never kind of um, I mean I'm sure other games had tried stuff like this before but I'd never seen so many of these kind of clever ideas put together in one kind of package that just looked looked so much better played so much better and actually felt like something that was a journey I was blown away by it I didn't play it at the time but reading about it in magazines and just seeing pictures of it you know it creates this world that you instantly buy into you know you knew the name of the characters you remembered the name of those characters and i think that you know it just established it that this is a place where you know not specifically these characters but you know where characters can and will exist in the future and you'll want to return to this particular world and i'm kind of interested about where we stand on because there's resident evil and there's resident evil director's cut and i don't really know what the deal is there well we're, we're gonna come to the the real problem with this hall of fame which is i mean i think we'll probably agree that resident evil has to be in there but there's resident evil yeah. the original there's resident evil director's cut and obviously we'll come back to your jumping on point I wouldn't put director's cut over the original, even though at the time I thought it was a much better game. I asked for this um, for my birthday or my Christmas, I can't remember which. I would have been 15 at the time. Um, Resident Evil uh, was my favourite game on the PlayStation until Metal Gear Solid came out. When I knew there was director's cut in the way I wanted it, because uh, another aspect of Mikami's games that I should have maybe mentioned with regards to the Hall of Fame... Uh, he's really interested in replayability. He's interested mm. in how you make a game that somebody can, you know, play again and again without getting bored. Um, which I think, you know, probably used to be much more important than it is now. Um, so, you know, with Resident Evil, the genius touch is that, you know, they spend all that money uh, building that amazing environment, but then they kind of get two games out of it just by switching between Chris and Jill. And, you know, when you go through the game like that, it slightly changes where items are and so on. Um, mm. And Resident Evil Director's Cut, it's a game made for people who'd played the original a lot. 
like it's all the little touches in it are kind of like things that if you were expecting it to work like the original game it surprises you like I always remember the one that really blew my mind when I first started playing it there's a room upstairs with a balcony with a guy who's been killed by birds um, I think right. his name might be Richard actually um, maybe that's why I remember him um, <laughs> and in the original he's just sitting there and like the birds are sitting on his skin pecking away at it you know he's got one of those great Capcom corpses where you're like what happened to this poor dude um, yeah <laughs> And in the director's cut, you go up to him to get a key um, that's on him, and he comes to life, um, which he never did in the original. He comes to life, he grabs out at Chris or Jill, and um, it goes back into the game, and he stands up and shambles towards you in his star's uniform. Um, so it's full of wonderful little touches like that, where if you've played the original, it's going to surprise you again. And it also included, I can't remember what it was called, but it was like shuffle mode or something. And basically that changed the placement of every item pretty much in the mansion. So if you'd played the original, you played this on shuffle mode and it completely changed the way you navigated the game space, um, mm. which was just really nice as a as someone who had played the original a lot. And it reflects this kind of mindset Mikami obviously had of like, well, I have to do this. I know this environment inside out, so how mm. do I make it interesting for a player who also does and might buy this because they like the original so much. Um, so I have a lot of time for Director's Cut. Um, I loved it uh, when I was younger. I would have probably said it was better than the original, but now with the benefit of hindsight, it's like that original game is just so important that the minor tweaks the Director's Cut make to it, like, yeah, they're lovely and all, but I, I couldn't see myself choosing the Director's Cut over the original in the Hall of Fame. Like, mm. the box just wouldn't look right. <laughs> Yes, it'd be something like, oh, couldn't you find the original copy? Yeah. And you're like, uh, yeah, okay. That's a yes for Resident Evil then. We may end up with multiple Resident Evils, who knows? Oh, I think there's at least one more. Oh, yeah, God, I mean, this, forget. God, God, this might end up a Resident Evil list. Next up is Dino Crisis. Obviously, very much a post-Resident Evil game. I mean, simply put, it's Resident Evil with dinosaurs. It isn't, as far as I understand it, a Mikami original. I believe it starts elsewhere, hits troubled development, and kind of lands on his plate. Weirdly, Shutakumi was a director on this at one point. Flubs it um, for various reasons is taken off it and Mikami steps in and which is why it's Mikami considered a Mikami directed game but I don't know if that means sort of how much how much of it is like a what he truly wants to be doing and is it is it more of a a production a producer role really for him it's got a really confusing kind of timeline behind it a confusing energy as well i'd say i don't think it's up there with his with his great games i think he, the way he talks about it is kind of like he sort of parachuted in in a way to sort of fix this and tidy it up in in a list which has already got resident evil in it a, a, a less good version with velociraptors um and some slightly difficult puzzles courtesy of shutakumi i'm not sure if it makes the cut i remember kind of quite liking it at the time i mean it was still like a pretty good capcom game and uh god knows most studios never even make one of those in their history um right it's a good it, fantasy yeah it, well yeah i mean like you know like everyone else i 
love Jurassic Park and you know this is basically what if Jurassic Park but with lots more guns it had that different visual style to the pre-rendered kind of backdrops of Resident Evil so it was like it seemed kind of super impressive to me at the time anyway that it was doing this in a more uh, you know inverted commas real way some of the dinosaurs were great the combat could be quite exciting what I would say the difference is is that like I find Resident Evil an incredibly memorable experience and when you ask me what are the great moments of Dino Crisis I'm like uh, that bit where the T-Rex's head appears at the window and I'm struggling to think of much else you know it's like right. it's, it doesn't have that kind of I, I would say you know the, the secret ingredient is quality really um, mm. it, maybe what you're saying is right because it doesn't have that feel of something that's been like honed and perfected it feels like something that's been finished and finished well yeah like, yeah yeah by absolutely no means bust but it isn't like a, I, I i don't think he himself is like please play dino crisis it's my best work yeah um i, I do worry though because people really love this game whether we've just lost the back page a whole segment of fans sam will oh, listen we, to this be like what have you done we've been a bit shaky on dino crisis in the past Considering the shooter Kumi link, we kind of gloss over it a fair amount. Don't have really strong opinions either way. But let us jump forward to yeah. something I do have strong opinions on. But it's kind of an interesting case. This is Resident Evil remake in 2002 on a really basic level. Like, holy shit, unbelievably good looking game. And as a kind of stick to beat my like non-Nintendo believer friends at the time, you know, when everyone is kind of like throwing down with different console manufacturers and kind of hedging their bets. I thought this was one of the ones which really showed off, like, look what the GameCube can do. You've never seen a game that looks as good as this. Um, like the leap from 1996 to 2002. Yeah. I mean, just six years. Unbelievable. Like one of the, the biggest glow-ups of all time. I mean, the original, obviously, looks incredible for the time, but um, I still think this game kind of looks astonishing. You know, there's the baseline sort of prettiness of it, but it just makes that house feel so evil and so cold. It's a really, really scary place. It really, really heightened it for me. The kind of ingenious sort of mechanical twist is the addition of uh, Crimson Heads, which are sort of reanimated zombies who the ones you shoot down can get back up even worse than before. Um, yeah, I fucking hate those guys. Yeah, and it creates this, you know, it takes a scenario which is all very, very, already very stressful, which is like, do you even have enough bullets to take down one of these guys? And it's like, do you even want to take down one of these guys if you have those bullets? Because they could potentially be a much nastier problem. Um, I think it just adds an extra edge of, like, persistence to that world and, like, the idea of like past decisions coming back to haunt you which is just a really elegant thing to do with the space that you're going to be looping back and forth on putting that aside you know i just couldn't believe how good this looked is this uh hey mikami or mr resident evil you have to make it is this a game he's like particularly proud of particularly invested in it's really really fine work does that earn it a place in the hall of fame this is what i thought would be the biggest problem with the hall of fame because um I couldn't have a higher opinion of this game. Um, yeah. And, yeah, some people might think, why are these two old geriatrics going on about the graphics from a game from 20 years ago? I couldn't believe a game could look this good. Right. Like, I, the first time I saw screenshots of this in a mag, I was just like, they can do that? It was, it was, <laughs> yeah. it was really one of those moments. It looked 
just astonishing even now and I um I reviewed there was a re-release of this um I think it was an Xbox 360 or something and I was talking about how good it looked and I think I think it was for Eurogamer or something and a couple of people were like oh you know they haven't done anything the aspect ratio is fuzzy <laughs> da, 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 da. I'm like you people don't have eyes um <laughs> such a rich opulent kind of take on the mansion um and it does feel like a kind of personal labor of love like um you know that's obviously me putting something onto it that may well not be there maybe mccammy was just given the job yeah right but like i do think it's interesting that it probably was a choice on his part like he was quite powerful at capcom by this stage and it does have that element where, like, every edition it makes, uh, yeah, completely agree. Crimson Heads are genius. Um, also, the little stabby knives it adds so that you have a chance to get away from a zombie attack, like if you've got a little pocket knife on you. Mm. Um, I mean, these are, like, very small tweaks, really. I remember with the Crimson Heads, didn't they mark them on the map so you could see where you'd left a corpse? Or did you just have to remember them? I pre- I I I recall just having to remember, like yeah. it really giving you no, was, no advantage. I, I do remember that thing of being like, you know, you'd play for a while and then you'd get an item and you'd be like, in the way that game works, you'd be like, oh, now I need to go back to this wing of the mansion, and you'd be thinking, oh fuck, I killed a zombie there about half an hour ago. Like, <laughs> that that'd just be it. You'd just be like, and I remember taking these like massively circuit circuitous routes around yeah. the mansion because I knew there was like a, a room with two crimson heads in it and I was just like that room no longer exists <laughs> mm. it adds the big kind of back area to the mansion as well, the mansion in the original has the gardens which leads to the outhouse which eventually ends up in the lab and in this one it has like that little graveyard area at the back with um, oh what's her name Lisa Oh yeah, because uh, it adds her as well um, and this kind of creepy history of the Spencer family and yeah everything it adds improves the original game which I really don't think is common in remakes at all like this is someone mm. who clearly understood the source I mean, well of course he understands the source material intimately but yeah, you yeah. like he understands what makes it work he understands what he can add that will make it work better without making it different if that makes sense. One thing I will say is that I once met, and you'll have to forgive me here because I don't remember the guy's name, I met the Capcom programmer who programmed the snake in the original Resident Evil. Oh, yeah. Um, I ended up sitting next to him at dinner. Um, I wanted to sit next to him because I loved that snake, and I just wanted to talk to him about that fucking snake, and he was... Sorry, I'm swearing a lot. (laughs) He was clearly (laughs) sick of the snake. How do you bring that up over dinner? During dinner... um, I asked him, you know, what what was... Because he'd worked on every Resident Evil, this guy. And this would have been about the time of Resident Evil 6, I think they were working on at the time. So fairly advanced in the 360 era. And he said, oh, you know, the best Resident Evil we've ever made is the GameCube remake. And that was it. <laughs> like, that, that was Snake Man's opinion. So... <laughs> I, I'm. It's maybe not wrong. I'm conflicted about this one. It's okay to have maybes at this point. Yeah. Okay. Like, I mean, this is like a, it's Oasis. It's definitely maybe. Next up, we have PN3, not PNO3, as I've been calling it all these years. I can't imagine why you'd do that, Matthew. 
for people who don't know it, it is an action game in which you play as one of the great forgotten Capcom heroes, Vanessa Schneider. I would say not a classic Capcom star. Very unusual shooting game built around dodging and incredibly acrobatic dodging. Uh, you can only shoot when you're standing still, so it's all about leaping and pirouetting through fire to find a pocket and then shooting into the screen. You don't really aim in the game. It's really just about sort of finding a window to fire at the enemy. So the the mechanic is dodging rather than aiming in a traditional third-person shooter style. I've only played a little bit of this, to be fair. Um, I think there's a copy kicking around Future Tower somewhere, which I um, managed to steal at the odd lunchtime on. I recall it being very kind of clinical by Capcom standards. Visually, now I sort of think of it almost as a bit of a Vanquish precursor. Um, Aesthetically, I don't know how much the team, if any, were involved beyond Mikami. It's sort of at a period of time where the rules of third-person shooters are kind of being established and people are sort of still feeling their way around it. So there is room for someone to come in with quite a wild take and go, well, maybe the key thing is dodging and darting and hiding rather than aiming and shooting in the traditional sense. I think that's kind of novel. I don't particularly like this game, (laughs) Um, is the problem. Yeah, it's a game where it has an idea it's quite a good idea, and I think you're completely right to call it the precursor to Vanquish. Like, I think Vanquish is going to take a lot of the ideas that make up PN3 and do them a lot better and a lot more exciting. Mm. Um, it can be, like, it always felt to me like an attempt to do one of those kind of great treasure shmups as a 3D action right. game. Um and I think, like, a lot, I get that vibe from a lot of Mikami's games. Like, this is a 3D attempt to make, you know, insert arcade format here. Oh, um, okay. And a lot of the game comes from that. Like, it has this kind of, like, very austere visual style, which, if I had to guess, is probably because it's so focused on the fluidity of the action. Um, mm. And, you know, like, yeah, she's not one of the great Capcom characters, but, like, there are sequences of movement in PN3 that are incredible. Um, that said, I don't quite think it hangs together. Like, um, I, mm. I never really... I quite like this game. I th- I thought it was like... I mean, it is original. Like, you know, there's, there isn't really much else you can compare it to. Um, but I don't think it quite gelled together into, like, what it maybe could have been. Um, I think yeah. I think it's one of those games where you like see what it's going for, and there was definitely a good idea there. Um, but yeah, frankly, I think he returns to these ideas with much greater success later. Um, mm. And yeah, it's you know, it's a swing and a miss for me, unfortunately. Relatively iconic, like I, you know, when mm. you see a screenshot of this game, it is can only really be this game. Like it's probably a character upside down doing a, like a weird cartwheel <laughs> in the air, and you're like. Well, only PN3 looks like that. Sort of fond of it as a thing I used to see in magazines, obviously one of the kind of Capcom 5, so there was this like buzz around, oh my God, these are GameCube things, only we're getting these, like the best developers in the world are making them. But um, really, the main event uh, comes two years later. In 2005, we have Resident Evil 4. We talked 
a fair amount about this game already on this podcast. He's talked about this as being like action first. He doesn't really think about it as a horror game, which is obviously like a big shift for the series. Uh, Resident Evil has already been like changing hands. Like that's quite the odd thing, given that he kind of creates the first one. You know, the second game is directed by Hideki Kamiya. They then, you know, they're all subsequently directed by different people. He returns to it this with this very different vision, wants to turn it into this action game and comes up with this incredible uh, over-the-shoulder shooting system. Uh, he tells a really great story. In a, there's a Capcom filmed interview about Resident Evil, I think made for, like, the release of Village, where they basically got Mikami in to, to say some nice words. And he tells a story about... Uh, Masahiro Sakurai, the creator of Smash Brothers, coming in to there to, to see meet the development team when they were working on Resident Evil Four, and uh, him just pointing at this over-the-shoulder perspective and saying, you know, that is going to be the thing now. Like that is going to be what games are, which is kind of true. Like in a, in the third-person action space, to try to change the perspective like that and give people this whole new look that. You know, basically, to create something that instantly becomes the norm. Pretty amazing. I don't think third-person games ever looked back over their shoulder after Resident Evil 4. That kind of insight probably could only come from a creator who'd made a lot of 3D games previously. Um, up until this point, yeah, you were just stuck in the middle of the screen largely, or you were dealing with a fixed perspective game. I mean, he's right with what he says. I mean, obviously, Mr. McCammy is right about everything. But um, he's right with what he says about it increasing the action focus. I don't think it loses um, <laughs> all of the horror by any means. I just think it replaces it with something different. Um, you know, it's a much. It becomes much more of a body horror. Like Resident Evil Four is as much about watching poor old Leon get absolutely mutilated um, mm. as it is kind of successfully completing the game because you know first time you play that you're going to die so many times and like when you see what they do to him you know it's like the thing I was talking about with Resident Evil you know that those horrible little sequences at the end are so much worse than this um, you know they really rip Leon apart bodily and it was something I'd never seen in a game before just straight up mm. like I'd never seen a game be this kind of like uh, I mean it's just Mm. horrible horrible violence that they inflict on my poor boy Leon Kennedy um, so it does ha it did have a kind of um, shock factor if you like um, and it's mm. also that kind of industry leading thing of like it doesn't just introduce you know this kind of third person over the shoulder perspective that would become the standard it also looks better than anything on any other platform um, I mean, this this game, wow, did it look the part. Um, oh you know, my God. it plays better than all yeah. of them as well. It introduces all these kind of um, <laughs> completely new ideas. Um, this isn't quite where um, Mercenaries Mode is born, for example, but it kind of perfects it again. That's his little obsession with the minigames. You also get the shooting gallery in this game. Um it's it's a product that's just I don't I don't even want to call it a product I can't mm. believe I did that but it's it's so packed with stuff um, even even something like so beloved as the attaché case you know like he's thinking about the, like the Resident Evil inventory screen had become fixed like up until this point it was just like 
a little grid of blue blocks and every item took up one block uh, apart from I think the grenade launcher and the shotgun movie took up two and that was the only the only bit of inventory management in the series and then Mikami's like I'll just make it Tetris mm. you know why not um, and it's so satisfying when you get into it like the amount of time you spend in that and it's so incidental mm. to the game again it's one of those things where like it's so much better than it needs to be in every single area. Um, I remember looking at... Uh, you ever seen the Hooked Man footage of this, the cancelled version? Like I followed the kind of development of this game in magazines way back when. Like I, I remember iterations which had ghosts. Is that the same thing as the Hooked Man? But it is, yeah. The what-ifs for this game are kind of mad, given... It's one of those games that's so good in its eventual form that it almost sort of almost seems inevitable... But that so isn't the case. Yeah, there's like there's the Hooked Man version, and then I think there's one. This this might be a fever dream where they're thinking about setting it on a blimp or something. Um, <laughs> but there were at least two versions cancelled of this during the production. <laughs> they didn't really know what to do with it. Um, and yeah, in the end, what you get is you know every single third person game since this game owes a massive, massive debt to it, whether you're talking about Gears of War, whether you're talking about Naughty Dog stuff, they all wear their love for Resident Evil 4 on their right shoulder, and, you know, frankly third person games are all the better for it and that's that's really something, you know, like some people say Resident Evil created the survival horror genre, and you know, I kind of buy that in the sense of popularising it um and if you give him the credit for that, then like <laughs> Resident Evil Four, I think d- just defines an entire genre. Like third-person yeah. games after this, yeah, I don't know if yeah, there I, a... if there is another big advance. Uh, no, I don't think so. The crazy thing like this, I've always you know I love its pacing, and that isn't uh, an original thought when it comes to Resident Evil Four. But the kind of ups and downs of the adventure, the constant kind of like arrival of new ideas and. It's quite interesting because if you look at all the games he's directed, there are many opportunities to like really show off that particular skill. A lot of these games have like quite weird rhythms or structures to them. You know, the original Resident Evil. You know, you're kind of left to your own devices to find your pace. Even like I wouldn't say like the 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 magic of Vanquish is is like the traditional cinematic action game pacing like that it that isn't where that that game like particularly sings god hand very interesting kind of mechanical offering but this shows such a gift for that kind of cinematic roller coaster ride that that is now the norm it, it's kind of interesting to me that he hasn't really like done a straight version of that ever again like he has a grasp of it i think most people at naughty dog would absolutely kill for and people have been trying to kind of emulate ever since. It's kind of mad that this is like the one in his lineup, which is that. Yeah, it it is kind of curious. It's like there is an element of you know him just making the game he wanted to make with Resident Evil branding. <laughs> yeah. And you know that that was a great thing in the end. It's it's funny actually, given um one of the things I remember about Dino Crisis uh is he called it like a horror roller coaster which I always thought was a much better description of Resident Evil 4, and I think you yeah. just used that exact term for it um, without the horror. Because um, mm. it, it does have that sense of incredible, incredible momentum. You know, some games, when they get it right, 
you can feel towards the end of them something pulling you like you want to finish this thing and it's encouraging you know it's encouraging that and the challenges it's putting in front of you and you're so invested in getting to the end and like by the end of Resident Evil 4 I was like god damn am I going to finish this mission <laughs> you know like you've been on such a journey and it's like um, I always felt that kind of oh that's another thing I didn't like about the remake I didn't like what they did with Mike <laughs> well, okay. but, uh, but um, I thought it was alright I thought it was alright in that section in the original I remember going up it and you do get that same thing of Mike just blowing away these emplacements that as Leon would be massive massive trouble and this sense of relief and just like like walking through the destruction thinking god it's almost over and thinking about what you've been through and like yeah I I I don't know what his trick is. Um, I don't think anyone does, really, because mm. nobody makes games like this. Um, but he has a knack for upping the ante in unexpected ways, um, doing things that are, compl- you know, completely tonally dissonant. Like, I've seen that criticism of Resident Evil 4. I, I think it's a perfectly fair criticism. I also just think it's no fun. You know, like, mm. I don't particularly care about tonal dissonance in certain contexts. And I don't think he did here either. I think he was just like, here's my character, here's his capabilities. And he makes Leon, like, an incredibly capable um, character. One of the things I really liked um, when you were talking about this versus Resident Evil 2, I know you were talking about the remakes, is the kind of the implied character growth in Leon between the right. two games, which you know, obviously as a series fan, that really struck me quite powerfully, you know, like just Mm. how capable this guy is now. And there is that thing with Mikami where it's like, right, well, I'm going to make this guy basically able to take on an army by himself. So, you know, what can we throw at him? And just throwing everything they can think of at him. (laughs) Right. And that's the thing. It's like not holding back. Um, You really don't feel like they held anything back in this game at all mm, mm. it's um so what i'm hearing is it's a maybe <laughs> you know it's it, it's it's it, i mean this isn't just the shinji mikami hall of fame this is a this is a video games hall of fame pick yeah um, as far yeah. as i'm concerned like, yeah same it's... same for me in the video game hall of fame this would have one of those five spots for sure well maybe we will gradually build this ultimate video game hall of fame i samuel would be cross that we've already given away one of the five without him being here, but, you know if you're gonna be sick yeah, that's what happens um what does this button do matt it says delete archive <laughs> <laughs> next up in 2006 we have god hand obviously resident evil 4 he couldn't be riding more high and he basically has the opportunity to make not his dream game, but like anything I want and make it exactly as I want is kind of how he puts it in the Archipel uh, interview. There's actually a very strange anecdote he tells about how he became fixated on one other member of the team who was like into the game. And he said, for this one project only, I'm going to tailor everything to this one member of the team. And if he likes it, then it goes in. If anyone else criticises it or if anyone else from the team brings me any suggestions, I'm going to ignore them. I'm literally going to make it for one person um, because I just want to see, A, well, like, what that looks like, and B, I felt like I could do that because I'd just made Resident Evil 4 for Capcom. So, like, why, why can't I do that? 
which is uh, a roundabout way of saying he comes to make an incredibly singular action game, which I am terrible at. So I'm hoping, Rich, that you can explain the magic of this um, to the listeners. Uh, I hope I can. Um, So I I love 3D fighting games um, generally. Uh, Capcom are obviously the masters of them. Uh, Platinum had a very good start. Um, I I have I actually haven't played Bayonetta three. I have to confess, although I am going to because I'm quite curious about the scale bound links. But yeah, Capcom were the masters of the 3D action game. Honorable mention, Team Ninja. This isn't like any other 3D action game. There's actually a Mikami anecdote which I'm very glad about because it helps me to explain how I feel about it. That thing I was saying earlier about how he looks at arcade genres and tries to do them in 3D. Mm. This feels like an attempt to look at what worked in things like Double Dragon, Final Fight, um, Streets of Rage, and bring some of that into 3D, which I would say 3D action games, the ones we think of, the Devil May Cry's, the Bayonetta's, they don't have any relation to those older games, really. And I found, when I went back to the God Hand Wikipedia page the other day, you know, doing my homework for this episode, it turns out Mikami actually played Final Fight Revenge, which was a 1999 game. They tried to do Final Fight in 3D, and Mikami's verdict <laughs> was that Revenge was, quote, shit. <laughs> <laughs> and he decided that one day he would do it better. So that's kind of interesting to me that, like, it is that kind of straight a line, because it was something I'd always felt about it, that this was a game that was kind of in that Final Fight you know, mould, trying to do what those games did because the trick to it and what I was talking about with the camera system being so amazing earlier is you're obviously playing Gene who is the possessor of the eponymous god hand and you kind of rotate him and you're always fighting in a straight line ahead of you, so you're always fighting like you're surrounded and the enemies will attack you but you're always fighting in a straight line whereas, you know, with like the more standard type of 3D action game, what they do is you have sweeping attacks. Like, even your sword will hit three enemies at once if you get the arc Mm. right, etc. In this one, you're literally fist-to-fist with enemies. I think that's another thing he said about the game. Like, there are weapons in it, but it's weapons like weapons you'd get in Streets of Rage. Like, you pick up a pipe, you hit three thugs with it, and it'll absolutely bluter them. But then the pipe breaks, like so. The weapons are very simple, very arcadey, like that, mm. and most of it is hand to hand. And it's about this kind of one on one, one on two, maybe one on three brawling. Probably more important than the combat system in a weird way, or the or the attacks, is the dodge system. So it has this remarkable idea, which is all the dodges are ma- mapped to the right analog stick. So you're Gene, you're planted in place, you're facing your enemy, and the enemy's attacks can be high, they can be to the side, either side, or they can be low. And if you press up on the right stick, Gene will duck and bob his head, like a boxer. So if they try and punch you, Gene just ducks and weaves, and it looks amazing, you know. Mm. If they try to attack from the side, you press left left or right on the right analogue, Gene will dash to that side. If they attack low, you press down, Gene does a backflip. The kind of key skill of it, because the other side is the attacks are simplified. So he decides he wants to go back to that simple arcade system of you just mash the button and a combo comes out of the character. 
So in God's hand, you acquire all the attacks, but then you go into the options menu and you set up your dream six hit combo. And basically you're constantly acquiring moves through the game. I don't know how many there are, but it feels like hundreds. But you just assemble your ideal roster of six and that's like your main combo. And then you have certain other moves that are useful in any context, but like that's what the game is. It's like dodging these enemy attacks from unassailable odds, unleashing your dream combo, which is really easy because you've just got to mash the button. Like that's the thing about God Hand. People talk about mm. it as this game with a massive skill ceiling. And it is. It absolutely is. Like the things people can pull off in this is incredible. But it's also like designed to kind of play more like an arcade brawler than people maybe think. Anyway, that's what's so amazing about the combat system in conjunction with the fact it's incredibly hard. All the enemies are utterly ludicrous and like, (laughs) I think I said this in the previous episode, some of the jokes in this game definitely wouldn't land uh, these days. I kind of (laughs) wonder about that guy he designed it for, whether he's doing well in his work life or... And it it, it, it it definitely has that kind of um, escalation of, you know, like, you're, the, the whole thing is ludicrous, you know, but like one of the enemies, it's like a fat Elvis. Or AKA Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many stupid enemies in this game. There's like a, a man in a gorilla costume. There's um like this hellish circle of like bosses you gradually fight through and obviously at the top of them is a devil hand um it's like power rangers right and oh yeah the i mean again something that probably wouldn't land too well these days it's uh dwarf power rangers um (laughs) who have an amazing amazing theme tune uh it's incredible and like there's obviously five of them and as it starts up they kind of do their little power ranger thing and they charge across the room at you they're a nightmare to fight (laughs) little bastards nibble your ankles while you're fighting the other ones all the gloves are off the enemy design is both inspired and absurd it doesn't even really have a tone like it feels like a joke uh the whole Mm. way through like a knowing joke yeah it's just absolutely fantastic to play crammed with jokes just crammed with jokes there's jokes in every corner in this game there's hidden enemies depending on how well you fight and oh this is perhaps the most important bit of the game it measures how you're playing and it's got a dial if you're fighting really really well it'll give you an a but the enemies will improve and you can go so it's like i think like c is just normal so it's like c b a and then there's s and i can't quite remember if it goes up to ss i think it does go up to ss and like you last about 10 seconds in that mode before you get absolutely gutted so it's this weird thing where like it does have adaptive difficulty it can be a bit crude how it works but it does work you know like Mm. as you get better at this game and it becomes the kind of the challenge of the game um almost is to like you can take out enemies really quickly if you know what you're doing and you use exactly the right moves it becomes this kind of self-imposed challenge after a while to kind of keep that meter as high as you can for as long as you can without dying and finally it has the replayability factor where you unlock a load of missions that are just fighting increasingly ludicrous combinations of the enemies in the game in a boxing ring which is Mm. just the combat system left to sing and they will give you 
everything they can throw at you in that mode and I probably spent as much time in that as the main game because I love the combat system so much but mm. I've I've never played anything like this again and I never will it's a bizarre game I'm so glad it exists I wonder if now free from Tango wandering developer <laughs> looking for a project if this is this is the kind of territory we'll find him if this is literally him left to his own devices let me make whatever I want to make this is kind of what he comes up with I mean it's bananas like the, the thing that I slight, slightly disappoints me about it is that I think Capcom looked at this and thought it was so nuts that they didn't put much effort into selling it which is kind of understandable I don't have the the same affection for it, but mainly because it's it's something I've never truly clicked with. It's a true original. You know, every idea in it doesn't really behave like anything else. It's quite hard to get a foothold to begin with. Quite a difficult game, like, until you do kind of click with it on a basic level. Yeah. It's definitely a game I've heard people talk about in terms of, like, when you lock in on it and you have it down, you know, it's quite a transformative experience. Not not quite in the same way, but, you know, you, people say sometimes say the same things about things like, you know, Sekiro or whatever. It's mm. like, once you've got the central idea down, you're, like, off to the races, and you can, like, really enjoy yeah. it. Maybe it doesn't do quite enough to, like, help you lo- lock in on it, but then why would it? Because it's made for, like, one bloke. <laughs> I, I, I kind of agree with that. Like, I wouldn't say my first couple of hours with this were particularly pleasurable something in it i liked i remember a lot of people were like really critical of the graphics at the time because um the main characters look great and the enemies look great and that's clearly where they put all the resource um and the backgrounds are just kind of like yeah they're a bit crappy looking i mean they're fine you know it's just kind of low texture 3d art but it's like why do why do you care about that stuff you know and it has some great Mm. kind of environment ideas as well later on it's such such an odd game. Um, it definitely could have done a better job introducing itself to players, but like there there really is nothing else like it. Um, mm. And I, I don't think there will be again. Um, it's kind of sad, sad and beautiful. Like I was glad when Capcom put it on PlayStation Network, but that was PS3 era, and right. it's it's not kind of available now. Um, and that side of it I think is sad like I think Capcom owe it to Mikami for the hundreds of millions if not billions his creations continue to bring into them Mm. they should keep God Hand alive on a download service if Ghost Trick can have a second shot at 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 life I mean um, I bet Ghost Trick sold 20 times what God Hand did um, yeah I mean as I was saying that I was like you don't actually believe this Uh, so I take it back. Sorry, sorry, Shu Takumi. Takumi's like, yes, finally got one over on Mikami. Not at all. He's uh, Mikami's his mentor. Oh, of course, uh, of course. It's going in. It's going. In. It's got to go in the Hall of Fame. Like, I think this has to go in as like the most Mikami Mikami game. Yeah, I mean, this is what this is what he thinks a game should be. You know, in his heart of hearts. So yeah, that's that's a great description of it. The other one I always remember. It was the Edge review. It was slightly before I joined the magazine, and I remember thinking the review had underscored it, because I think they gave it a 7 or maybe a 6. Right. Of course, a 6 is a good score. Um, yeah. But the final line of that review is great. It says, um, there's, a lot lo- there's a lot wrong with this game. You know, I've told you some of what that is, but if you overlook this game because of that, you're missing out on the equivalent of a drunken night out with some of Capcom's finest minds. 
and that's the perfect <laughs> way of putting it like it is just these genius creatives kind of you know with their undergarments flying in the wind what an image um <laughs> to have in our mind as we uh, allow this into our illustrious hall of fame i uh, hope there's no sort of um, easily shocked people in the crowd for this ceremony i mean that kind um, of suits th- god hand that's that's the god hand <laughs> level of humor yeah i'd like the idea that as it's going into the hall of fame pe- some people are booing you know have i you, think have, that's have you... <laughs> that's how it should be <laughs> the ign reviewer at the back <laughs> Uh, that that person is not invited to our ceremony. Have, have, um, you, have you seen the credit sequence to Godhand? Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> ever ever if you if any listeners haven't Google the Godhand credit sequence because everyone should see it at least once, even if you won't play the game. We now jump forward to 2010 for Vanquish. Not the biggest career when you lay it all out. Like we're already mm. getting into the you know the the near the end of of things he's actually directed as mentioned before this is the game he ends up making it platinum uh, because sega don't want his more interesting ideas that's, that's a bit unfair to vanquish uh looks like a cover shooter isn't really a cover shooter something a lot more dynamic you play as sam gideon a man with rocket knees and an incredible combat suit that lets him slow time and dart around the battlefield um i think the problem with this game is it arrives at a time where the cover shooting rhythm is so well established and people who try and play this game like that um you will probably succeed but probably won't have the best time and certainly won't kind of click in with this character again a bit like god hand i think there is a little bit of a uh a teaching problem in this game about like maybe how it's meant to be fully enjoyed but um if you do click into uh just this wildly powerful central character who is just so capable in so many ways and capable of so many fantastic moments and ideas that would normally exist in like lesser games cutscenes. you know here in the battlefield you have this incredible ability to pull off these sort of anime manic feats it's very very hard not to get sort of sucked up in this we were maybe a little cool on this in our platinum hall of fame on the grounds of we kind of love the feel, we love the ideas. Maybe it doesn't have the kind of sort of as iconic like world or general sort of like thrust of a campaign you would maybe hope for from the maker of Resident Evil 4. I don't know if you feel that's unfair. I was thinking earlier when you mentioned the Platinum Hall of Fame, I was thinking there was something I was upset about in that episode. What was it? I mean, and... there was quite a lot, I think. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is a game actually where... I think you like, like don't you like Anarchy Reigns also? No. I, I do like Anarchy Reigns a lot, yeah. Um but Maybe I'm not I'm not sure Mikami was involved with that at all. Vanquish. I was a tiny bit cool on it when it came out. I think I reviewed this, it might have been for Eurogamer and gave it an eight, which mm-hmm. I'm actually kind of not ashamed of. Um but I th- I think it's definitely a nine. I wouldn't give it a ten. I t- I'm probably giving the lie to the idea game reviewers don't think about their review scores. Um, <laughs> because over time I've come to appreciate just how much it delivers, just how unusual it is, just how different it is from the rest of the pack. Um, mm. When I first played Vanquish, um, which would have been for the review, the first hour or so I didn't get it. Like, I kind of mm. got it. I was sliding around a little bit. But I was still spending most of my time kind of taking cover and you know playing it like like it was a Gears of War with a robot man or something. And it's only when you 
realize why am I sitting here in cover letting them shoot at me when I can just zoom over there shoot them in the back and then zoom over there and do that guy as soon as you get that in your head like I can just be anywhere in a couple of seconds and they can't mm. um, it's such a different game um, the best description of it I ever saw um, it was I can't remember who it was I think it, I think it might even have been a games journalist on Twitter or something somebody called it the anti-cover shooter and that's exactly what it is because you think about gears and you know I've got a lot of time for the gears games mm-hmm. they're they're fun um, but like you do kind of slam into a wall as a big man hide behind it and then pop out and shoot locust until they're dead and then you go mm. to another wall and you know obviously there's some dyna- dynamism within that but next to what Vanquish is doing, that ilk of game just feels completely stationary, whereas Vanquish is like, here's a giant arena, use absolutely all of it. And once that clicks in your head, um, you just realise there's, yeah, again, like, I've ended up saying this twice now, but it's like, you probably won't play anything like this ever again. I think elements of it have found its way into other games, like I think Warframe has nicked quite a lot of it without being anywhere near as good. I mean, obviously, completely different experiences. Um, the singularity of the vision of that suit and what that suit can do is just incredible. Yeah, I kind of agree with what you're saying about the characters, though, because I, I kind of liked Sam in that kind of stereotypical jock way. Um, I hated Burns, is it? The big, beefy commando dude. I sometimes get the characters in this confused with the characters in Binary Domain. Ha! <laughs> yeah, well... Um, Binary Domain was actually quite a good story, I thought. But um, yeah, well, that's yeah, that is that is the difference. And I'm much more into the world of Binary Domain. Yeah. I want the world of Binary Domain, but the action of this. Yeah. Um, that's a ten. <laughs> yeah, that is a ten. I think this one has Hillary Clinton as president, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it doesn't quite have the. I think you're right in what you say about the world building. It's got this mm. absolutely incredible suit at the centre of it. Incredibly capable protagonist. The enemies are fun to fight. Like, it has some great ideas for Mm. the boss fights, I think. And of course, you know, you ultimately find out there's a baddie with his own evil suit, which is classic. You know, that's how it has to go. Um, (laughs) But yeah, the... It doesn't have that kind of character, I would say, of some of his Mm. earlier work. Um, It feels like a slightly blander product in terms of theming if I was going to mark it down for anything, it would be that. Like, But as a game... It was a no for the Platinum Hall of Fame, but I kind of feel like it probably is a yes for the Mikami Hall of Fame. How many are we on now? How many have we stuck in there? Our yeses are original Resident Evil, Resident Evil 4 in God Hand. And we've got... We've got a maybe for Resident Evil Remake. Oh, God. It's so good, Vanquish. I think yes. Uh, Maybe on the grounds of... I think it should be celebrated that... Uh, as late as 2010, someone was still challenging what were already norms. I th- yeah, and I think it should be in there because I don't think any game has ever given me a better sensation of speed. Yeah, I, I'm actually like um, I'm making the mistake I did in my Eurogamer thing again of like, <laughs> you know, because it ends on like a bit of a cliffhanger. You know, obviously yeah, right. setting up a Vanquish two, which would never happen. I was a little bit down in it for that, and I was a little bit down in it because the characters weren't that great and all that stuff. But actually, when I think back to this game, I just want to play it again. 
Um, mm. And how many games can you really say that about? Like, this just feels fantastic in the hands. And going back to what we were saying earlier about PN3, like, this is the kind of, you know, ultimate culmination of those ideas. Like, when you mm. look at what PNO th- PN3... Oh, I almost did a PNO3 there. Um, <laughs> when you look at what it's doing with the bullet patterns and stuff, and then look at what Vanquish does with the bosses, and it, it gives you that full-on bullet hell experience. Because mm. it knows all the player has to do is click the slide button and run, you know, move in a direction, and they'll avoid it all. It doesn't matter that, you know half of Russia's ordnance stock is coming at Sam because he can move at 80 miles an hour over there right away. So yeah, I think in terms of like it does have that thematic link of like following through on an idea that he had one previous attempt at realising and maybe didn't, Mm. you know, get there and yeah, whatever you can criticise about Vanquish, it's an amazing feeling game. Um, Like the bits where you drop kick a robot and go into slow-mo as he backflips off them and you just kind of blow them away with your pistol as you're landing oh i mean that that is purest video game yeah it's got to go in why was i ever doubting it which leads us to uh the final mikami directed game uh 2014's the evil within which is mikami returning very much to his resident evil 4 roots albeit in a much grimy and nastier world like there isn't the kind of popcorn fun of resident evil 4 which is set inside the sort of psychological landscape uh inside the head of a serial killer which gives them an opportunity to take you to some truly dire places uh i'd say it's got more of like a sore aesthetic it's unrelentingly nasty almost a bit of silent hill in the mix but still kind of paired to the over the shoulder kind of action intensity of resident evil 4 uh, listeners of this podcast know i'm a big fan of evil within it doesn't rub shoulders quality wise with resident evil 4 but it's one of the few games which has uh, that flavor and i just react so positively towards that i have such affection for resident evil 4 that anything that's sort of even a bit like it is already in my good books um i obviously love that it plays claire de lune in the safe houses which is a classic mikami touch Rich, Evil Within, uh, where do you stand on this series? Because, uh, you know, without jumping too far ahead, or we can jump a little bit ahead, I notice you've got Evil Within 2 down as one of your potential inclusions as a Mikami-produced game. I mean, I I have the highest opinion on Earth of the Evil Within 2, probably uh, a slightly cracked opinion. I I like it much, much more than... um, I, I think people generally quite like it. I, I really like The Evil Within too. I think it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Really liked uh, The Evil Within as well. E- everything you said about it is right. It does have this element to it uh, where let, let's not overdo it because it's still a game about shooting things in the head. It's got more of a sense of mental horror than Resident mm. Evil necessarily has. Obviously this thing of it, be, the whole thing being set in a kind of mental construct of uh, Rivik, I think is his name. Yeah. Um, and like terrible story this game i think uh the, there are bits of it that are terrible there like i kind of think like some of the world building in these games is incredible and then you know when it has to actually be a game and have narrative beats it loses it yeah. somewhat um 
I was I was interested to hear, hear you mention Silent Hill because um, I've always wondered if members of Team Silent worked on these games because the visual style of some of the monsters, to me, mm. outside of the kind of standard enemy types, which are like you know they're zombies. How much can you do with that? Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, God, imagine how many character designers are tasked with that every day. Um, <laughs> Outside of those, like the bosses they come up with in these yeah. games, and they do still play like Resident Evil games, but they're much more the kind of thing I'd associate with Silent Hill. And it's not afraid to give you that thing which Resident Evil kind of moved away from of a big, terrifying thing that is definitely going to kill you, and you just have to get away from it. Mm. And it's kind of like, it's got that great, great sense for... Um, putting its protagonist in danger that feels real. Mm. I felt scared in a way that like a 3D Resident Evil game hadn't made me feel for quite a long time. Sorry, third person mm. I meant to say, not 3D. Because I think Resident Evil only recaptured that when it went back to Village. And even then only for the first half, really. It's, it's an interesting one. Cause I, I think it's, it's like weirdly humorless, The Evil Within, by mm. Mikami's standards. Like it almost lacks his lighter touch and his like sort of gamey sort of fun touch. Like there is there is some of that stuff, you know, like the safe room area yeah. is this kind of like mental asylum kind of reception you go to and you, you collect these keys which let you unlock one of like 50 lockers and there's a little bit of a fairground vibe to which of these lockers are you going to open up and is it going to be something amazing or is it going to be something shit behind it and you know that's yeah. that's quite a Makami-ish idea, but it's it's quite a bleak game. Apart from collecting brains in jars, yeah, well, there's brains in jars, but like you, you know what I mean. It, it, it's it's like you know a bad hang in the parlance of the, this podcast. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely stuff I like about it. Like um, it yeah, story-wise, I think I like the fact that like Sebastian's like fucked up. You know, it's very clear that he's not just the kind of guy in his mid forties whose life has gone wrong, but like he's probably an alcoholic. He has a terrible relationship with his daughter. Uh, he's kind of conflicted about why he's kind of here at all, not here in the game world, but like still doing this job, etc. And I think he's better developed, and a kind of he feels like a more adult character than any of the Resident Evil lot. <laughs> the Rivik stuff, kind of, yeah comes across as little more than the kind of cackling villain. It's a game I like a lot, but I kind of agree with everything you're saying about it. Like, it doesn't have that wink that, yeah, you would normally expect from Mikami, and maybe the humour wouldn't fit here. Um, I think mm. the only the only bit of humour is the nurse in the mental ward who she says different things to you as you go back, and depending on how much you talk to her over time, she gets kind of warmer to Sebastian and says some funny stuff but like that's not that's not a strain of comedy that's just <laughs> like an NPC at the save bit does does the evil within one make the hall of fame I mean the thing is it's a good game this got sevens when it came out didn't it I gave it an eight in OXM yeah I, I would say that's about that's about fair if not like I, I liked it more than most, I would say. You know, I was saying that, you know, a lot of his games, he never really returns to that pacing of Resident Evil 4. This is the closest he gets, I'd mm. say. You know, there's there, there's an idea of, like, let's change it up every 20 minutes. Let You know, here's a new mechanic, here's yeah. a new gimmick, here's a new obstacle. Yeah, and that's kind of exactly what I liked about it. Like, um, 
it, mm. it felt like it basically felt like Capcom didn't know where to go after Resi 4 you know Resident mm. Evil 5 is just those mechanics again in a different setting Resi 6 is just like even more <laughs> <laughs> it's the um, most more any game has ever been <laughs> yeah indeed <laughs> And this did feel in some ways like a kind of mechanical evolution, if nothing else, of mm. Resident Evil 4. Um, I, I do think, like, I was amazed at how great the shooting felt in this. Wow, mm. when you fire a gun in this game, it really feels it. And like you say, that thing of, like, it's not afraid to rip you out. And it, it use, I do think it uses that conceit of it being set in Rivik's mind really nicely. Because it's got the excuse to do anything. Like it can just pull you out at any moment and say, "This mm. is happening now," and it does do that. I think the the sequel may even do it more successfully. But um, mm. yeah, it it may not have the humor, but it I think it does have that element of surprise. And it's maybe just that the tone is perhaps a bit too grim. I mean, we can put this up as a maybe as well. So we've currently got four yeses. We got Resident right. Evil, the original, Resident Evil Four, God Hand, and Vanquish. Maybe should we talk about some of the the things he's produced? I wonder if there's a case to be made for one of the games he's produced uh, to take the fifth slot. I'm going to rattle through the few I highlighted. I just wanted to point out that Mikami does play a really, really key part in Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney. He's like in no way the creator of that game, but he does give Shutakumi an opportunity. Uh, he identifies Shutakumi as a future talent correctly and gives him uh, the time to just make you know his dream project a little bit like what Mikami does with God Hand I guess it's kind of a well done for Dino Crisis 2 here is uh, six months to make your dream game which is a detective game which is Ace Attorney it would be mad to call this a Mikami game but mm. you know I wanted to make the point the one I, I think maybe is a bit more interesting is Killer7 Mm-hmm. which is obviously a game he produces directed by uh, Suda51. This is one of the Capcom 5. Everyone was very excited for it. Quite an artsy out there game. It's a sort of on-the-rail shooter set in a very stylized cell-shaded-ish world where you play as a s- series of personalities, a family of assassins who are all kind of contained in, in potentially the schizophrenic mind of another assassin. Quite a baffling story. I'm not going to pretend I fully understand it. Mikami's role in it as a producer is, is you know, more about like enabling Suda51 to get this game through Capcom's system, but he does speak about it as quite a partnership and something that he is very fond of and you know enjoyed the experience so much that he later again works with Suda51 on Shadows of the Damned, which definitely isn't a hall of fame game um weirdly though shadows of the damned i think was going to be or was meant to be a killer seven-esque weirdo project um suda 51 had pitched an idea based on a unfinished kafka story wow which is actually what got mikami on board and he's like yes absolutely use my name to like get this contract signed they sign with EA, who allegedly like do hear this original pitch, but they basically get like munched up by the giant blockbuster system that is EA. And what comes out the other end is a game which you have a weapon called the Big Boner, which I don't think was in Kafka. Ugh, Jesus. I, I don't mind Shadow of the Dam, but it's clearly uh, like 
a dark moment in his career. Like, the way he talks about it in the Archipel documentary is quite funny. Just to see him be like, we pitched this Kafka project and we made Shadows of the Damned. <laughs> and, yeah, that probably... Uh, we probably shouldn't do that again. And I probably wouldn't make that game again. Um, so <laughs> let's, let's, not, let's not put it in... Just, just quickly, my favourite story about EA and how they help creatives was um, when I talked to David Doick, for, formerly of Free Radical, and uh, they signed up Time Splitters 3 to EA. EA said, you know, we're going to help you make this, you know, get this game to the next level, sell millions. So they sent over some consultants to help Free Radical. And Doic says uh, they turned up and all they had were these boards with big pictures of Vin Diesel on them. <laughs> There you go. There's your game design for you. God bless him. Are you a Killer7 guy? I like it without loving it. I know a lot of people yeah. who love it. Like, uh, obviously, the visual style, I mean, wow. It's still got that kind of incredible effect even now. Um, I, I, didn't, I didn't think the action was great. Like, it was okay enough for me to keep yeah. on playing for a while. I think the game is completely incomprehensible and yeah. like I'm a fan of some of Suda's stuff generally I like his tone his sense of fun the vibes of his games Killer7 like some people tell me it's got the greatest story games I've ever had I struggle to find it so it's a, I would say it's a game I respect but I don't love it which um, doesn't feel like Hall of Fame candidate to me I am interested however to hear about uh, your other kind of directorially adjacent projects from him you mentioned Evil Within 2 earlier mm. prefering it to Evil Within 1 I, what, what's, what's the deal with that. It's more how a couple of its bosses landed with me, and I think they were very well developed as characters. Um, maybe not the eventual fights against them. Like that's always mm. the problem with horror games. Like ultimately, any interesting character has to turn into a giant toothy blob. Um, it's a bit of a kind of <laughs> genre problem. Um, yeah. I thought it did an amazing job of a small open world, and mm. I'm so sick of open worlds now. I don't think I'll ever play a Ubisoft game again. Like, I haven't played an Assassin's Creed in, like, five or six years, and I know they're, right. ama I know they're amazing now, but, my God, I'm so sick of AAA open-world games. Um, mm. Just can't face them. And But I like open worlds. So, like, from that perspective, it was, like, it was very interesting to see a kind of survival horror game done in that kind of setting. I thought it used the conceit of pulling you in and out of the world's quite nicely. I thought the action was just tremendous. Story really well paced. I would say it was a smoother experience than the original. Like mm. this, is, this is almost heresy, but like um, I think it does pick up a lot of the ideas of the evil within and do them in a kind of like the only word I can think of is smoother, which is not really a great critical e explainer of what no, it's doing. I, I, I do think the. Um... I believe they call it wide linear open world thing. Here's a sort of hub area and there are like five things you can take at your own pace and maybe some surprise combat encounters between those things. Mm. It's like it's quite a nice place to kind of aim it and I definitely like will take that over over like proper open worlds apart from Zelda Tears of the Kingdom which we're obviously excited for. Hail to the king. Um, I think they sanded off some of the the, the rougher edges of one and maybe I'm just a little bit contrarian in I think some of the character of the evil within one that like resonates with me is the unabashed nastiness of it which 
Um, yeah, I think I still prefer one, but I, I, you know, I like your take on Evil Within Two. <laughs> yeah, I, I like it a lot. I, th- I think as with almost all of these games, it slightly tails off at the end, but I think they all do. And I think one of the mm. great tragedies of the Evil Within Two is that boss thing I was talking about earlier, because it ends up at the end being about the problems with Sebastian and his wife, and you end up like the final encounter in it. And I'm sorry if I'm spoiling this old game for anyone. You're like walking up to your old family home and your your daughter's watching you from the window and then your ex-wife appears. But because it's a survival horror game, she just becomes a gigantic monster and you just (laughs) blast her away with your shotgun. Like, it's kind of like, it's a bit, it's like as a narrative, as a moment of narrative closure, I'm not sure it's quite doing what it needs to. Yeah, that's one of those things where it's like, it's trapped by the nature of what it is. Mm. I think these games rub up against that all the time. But yeah. I, I like this game a lot. I rate it. That's a strong case for it being a bonus inclusion, perhaps. I'm also interested about your other pick. Would you like to talk us through this? Oh, yeah. So this this is basically, um, and I think we've briefly alluded to this earlier, this is kind of the Kamiya lineage, where um, mm. we've referenced various times this thing about Mikami of bringing the younger directors through, and probably the most famous example is Hideki Kamiya. And, you know, they're obviously quite close in age, I'm sure, Mikami would have had a successful career without Mikami, but the fact is Mikami seems to have taken a great interest in what Kamiya does and encouraged them to make some absolutely fantastic games. So um, Mikami was producer on Resident Evil 2, first of all, which was Kamiya's directorial debut, obviously the sequel to Shinji Mikami's own game. The concept for Resi 2 is Shinji Mikami's. He thinks that because the series has done a kind of traditional horror setting with the kind of haunted house, he thinks it's more interesting to take it to a contemporary urban setting. He's like, okay, well, the first game could have been set anywhere, but like the second game is set in the present day around the police station because that's going to freak people out. Brilliant, brilliant insight. But he puts Kamiya in charge and I think Kamiya has quite a nightmare on it because they famously cancel it, don't they? There's Resident Mm. Evil 1.5, which I believe is available in some state on the internet now, which is kind of interesting because that was a game that like only existed in two screenshots, you know, when I was kind of interested in it. I think Shutakumi also worked on that. Yeah, so that apparently gets cancelled quite a lot, you know, when quite a lot (laughs) has been done on it. Um, Right. Obviously, they made the right decision because Resident Evil 2, as it is, is fantastic. Kamiya then moves on to, I don't know if he does anything in between, but Devil May Cry starts as a prototype for Resi 4, or is it Resi 3? Yes, that's right. Um, Resi 4, I think. They obviously get, you know, so far into it, they realise this is like, I mean, if Resident Evil 4 is action-focused, this is very action-focused. Uh, they realise it's too much for the Resident Evil series and it has to be its own thing. The most notable thing about this, I think, when you think about Mikami kind of guiding Kamiya through Kamiya's kind of first personal creation is, you know, of of a series or, you know, an aesthetic, whatever you want to call it. Have you ever seen that picture of Kamiya with his mum in the leather classic. jacket? Classic. Yeah, that classic, <laughs> classic picture. You've got to stick that in the show notes because, like, that is the Devil May Cry aesthetic like right there (laughs) I think Devil May Cry is a wonderful game and like you can see that's a director that's been encouraged to like make the game he wants you know you've got a chance here do what you want with it that's certainly how it feels to me like one of the things about being a fan of Kami is you get this sense of what he thinks are is cool he has a real idea for what 
you know what's cool and what isn't and whether he's wrong or he's right i might admire his confidence um <laughs> and yeah beautiful joe is just the end of that where like still such an amazing concept making a game built around time manipulation but time manipulation as we understand it from vcr players or mm. cinematic techniques like that that is just genius it's another one where mikami produces it Kamiya directs and i think over that little arc of resident evil 2 definitely cry beautiful joe i mean kami is a you know as big a talent as mikami in some ways but Ugh. this is where the guy who would go on to make okami and bayonetta comes from you know <laughs> yeah kami is another one where it's like the real tragedy with scalebound is that whatever that game was like we're not getting it and it was a kami game and like how many has he got left in him because i I, mm. I want more it almost sounds like we're making the case that inside the the hall of fame which is going to be locked up so that these the games are safe we should put hideki kamiya himself yeah i mean that'd be interesting it'd certainly keep him off twitter wouldn't it i, I don't know if there's good wi-fi inside the hall of fame uh inside the t- I, <laughs> I don't know if is hall of fame a tomb <laughs> did i ever tell you um <laughs> I gave I gave Cami a um a bottle of whiskey once. Uh it was when I went to Platinum to visit them for something. <laughs> and uh he posted a picture. Uh I didn't realise this. He posted a picture of himself with me to some Japanese social media platform just saying, you know, meeting the foreign press. And I didn't know about this until years later when he blocked me. And I was right. like, Why is Camia blocked me? Why is Camia blocked me? And like s- some friendly soul begged Hideki Kamiya to unblock me and pointed to this picture that I didn't know existed on the internet saying, you've met this guy, he's alright, he gave you a bottle of whiskey. And then <laughs> Kamiya unblocked me. Wow. And, the... and uh, so now you just get to enjoy him retweeting pictures of Japanese babes. <laughs> it does get a bit dodgy sometimes, doesn't it? You're like, cool, this is valuable. <laughs> this, this man is of oh. a certain generation. <laughs> Maybe, listen, maybe the best place for him is locked inside a box uh, with a copy of Resident Evil, Resident Evil 4, God Hand and Vanquish. We've still got these two maybes. I mean, is it mad to put Resident Evil and Resident Evil Remake inside? This is what I was worried about. I called this right at the start. But then I think if if, if we just put, if we swap Resident Evil Remake out for Evil Within, which those are the two games of contention, it's, it sort of almost feels like the same thing in a way. You know, like they're both tapping into the same part of him. I I have to say, my heart's saying Resident Evil GameCube. Rich, you are our guest. You're my guest, <laughs> so uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna say it. So um, I feel really bad for the evil within there. I think it's okay. I think we've celebrated it enough on this podcast and and given it its due. There was three Resident Evil games, and two of them are the same Resident Evil game. Unless you'd rather put in the collective works of Cam here. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Like, let's let's be serious here, because like he's produced some amazing amazing games like i think the evil within 2 is great are we gonna it's p- funnier if we put cameo in the hall of fame i'm I'm not just here for the humor matthew what just like put hideki cameo <laughs> yeah. as one of his as one of makami's greatest productions <laughs> uh, yeah why not that's that, that sounds reasonable to me um i think if we put him in it helps explain the key like mental role he served more than anything it's not only did he produce these games, but he helped produce the great mind behind them, and that's some, that is a that is a trait of Mikami we want to enshrine in the Hall of Fame. What what if we get like an angry letter from like Kami's mum? I I, pro- oh. I produced this man. <laughs> <laughs> 
We'll let him out occasionally. He doesn't have to be it's just like weekdays, nine to five. I yeah, I'd be happy with that. I mean, we should caveat <laughs> it by saying, you know, like obviously Mikami deserves enormous credit, but he's not yeah. responsible for Kamiya's games being brilliant. Kamiya is. No. But yeah, it's that same, it's that same relationship, isn't it, that he had with Fujiwara himself. Um, yeah. And it's it's nice to see people paying that on in life and it being a success. It may seem one note, but I'm I'm actually quite happy with this Hall of Fame. I'm going to recap it, because uh, that's what Samuel would do. This is, uh, we've got Resident Evil from 1996. We have Resident Evil again from 2002, this time on the GameCube. We have Resident Evil 4, we have God Hand, we have Vanquish, and we have the produced works of Hideki Kamiya. <laughs> Which is absolutely preposterous, but that's what happens uh, when the brains of the outfit is ill. <laughs> well, I I am very very happy with that Hall of Fame, and it it is one of those things where like, if you were talking to somebody who hadn't played the games, they just they just wouldn't understand why Resident Evil was on there twice. I think if you've played the original and if you've played the remake, you will have a sense of just how different as well as how similar those experiences are and I think like one one of the things the remake really really shows um, and it comes across in some of his other games but not all is how much of a perfectionist Mikami can be and it's so obvious in that game because he's working with older material that he loves and he's clearly been given all the time and all the budget in the world by Capcom for mm. that game we called it a labour of love earlier. I don't know Shinji Mikami, but I'm pretty confident in saying I think he was 100% invested in this game. I think he wanted to make it something really special. And he did. And it's so different from the original game. And part of that is technology. You know, those six mm. years were an incredible six years for um, players of video games, you know, as as the succeeding 21 have been. So yeah, I mean, that's the only bit of the list that I think might look a bit odd, but I think it's completely justified. And Resident Evil 4, like we said, that would be in, you know, in my opinion, that would be in any game Hall of Fame. God Hand, I mean, you know what I feel about God Hand. God bless, <laughs> God bless that game. And yeah, when I look at Vanquish and the other potentials there, I would take Vanquish over the evil within... Uh, I like the evil within a lot, but Vanquish is just something different. It's so exciting uh, to play. Mm. Um, I don't think PN3s at the races, or I'm sorry no. to say Dino Crisis. Or Goof Troop. Goofy, <laughs> uh, uh, dejected in the corner. We have our Hall of Fame. Rich, thank you so much for joining me for this very long podcast. Thank you very much for putting up with my uh, slightly... Uh, uneven hosting. <laughs> I've, I've 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 really enjoyed kind of helping you through this period of trauma oh, this without been, this Sam. It's been a very emotional experience for me. Um, but there is no one in this world I would rather have uh, gone through this with than you, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> I hope to get you back on the podcast. Uh, you are always welcome here. We have lots of exciting things to talk about. Yeah, I'd I'd love to come back. I'm desperate to do that. Battle Royale you mentioned at one stage with oh, yeah. me and Dan Dawkins on the PS2. Oh, I'd love it. Yeah, that's 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 a, a big a big dream episode for us. We just need to we just need to carve out some time where everyone is available. But um, 
Yes, we'll try and make that happen. Well, Dan's uh, big and important these days. More big and important than me, anyway. <laughs> he has a ridiculous oh, job guess. title, doesn't he? I mean, yeah. God, I should know this. I work at the same company. <laughs> he is very important games, man. <laughs> well, you have that to look forward to, listeners at home, should we ever be able to arrange it. Thank you so much for listening to the back page. Get well soon, Samuel. Thank you so much for putting up with my hosting again. Don't worry, I'm sure usual service will resume or will be well in the world. Uh, you can, of course... Oh, my God. The hilarious bit is Sam always does this thing, and I do not know, like, any of our podcast or email address because I normally tune out a little bit during this. Oh, fuck got it. got Twitter. Everyone else does. Just put it in the show notes. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter. You can email us. Listen to the last episode. Skip to the end. You can find out where you can email us. Uh, you, can, uh, you can support us on Patreon. Uh, that is also out there on the internet google it it's fantastic uh we've got some great episodes and jesus christ i need to get out of this episode so i'm gonna say goodbye for now goodbye rich thanks for coming on watch the god hand credits you were very professional i thought matthew night night <laughs> bye bye